The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Ah. Good to see you, my friends. Hey, great to see you again, too. Steve Maxwell uh, is, uh, for folks who don't know, a longtime Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, longtime strength and conditioning guru, uh, and my friend. And I found out about you from uh, DVDs, actually. I think someone from the underground posted up uh, a link to one of your DVDs a while back. And I got one of your kettlebell DVDs, um, which I thought was uh, very informative and, and very interesting. And then I started reading about your lifestyle and reading about your, your philosophies on training and your, reading some of your blog entries. And uh, you're, uh, you're an unusual dude when it comes to the strength and conditioning and fitness and, you know, just a, 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 the, the wellness advocates. You know, you usually have uh, a bunch of different schools of thought when it comes to those. You got meatheads who are just into lifting the heaviest, you know, weights that they can and getting as big as they can. But you're a, sort of a weirdo, man. You're like traveling the world. You're doing seminars all over the place. You're, you're eating very little food. You're, you know, you're, you've, you've sort of like you've got a lot of people interested in how you're living your life these days. Well, I've uh, definitely gone through an evolution. You know, I've been at this for 51 years. I started when I was like 10 years old. That's my, when you started working out? Yeah, when I was 10. My uh, father got me uh, a, a York barbell set. York was just down the road from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And uh, I was one of those kids that was sort of weak and scrawny and uh, basically getting picked on by some of the neighborhood kids. And my, my father kind of saw where this was going, got me the barbell set, and uh, literally made me go out for wrestling. Really? Made me. I, I went kicking and screaming. <laughs> and then I found out I was actually pretty good at it. Well, you, uh, you must be happy. You must have thanked him at some point in time. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, he had tried to teach uh, both me and my brother boxing and so forth in the backyard. And uh, I, I, I learned early, I didn't like to get hit, but I sure liked to clinch and take guys down, man. Well, that's was, a sign of intelligence. It was just a natural evolution. And then I discovered, hey, man, I really got this thing for wrestling. And all my training was geared to making me a better athlete, as opposed to the body beautiful or even uh, powerlifting or Olympic lifting. I was always interested in improved performance for my chosen activity and back then that wasn't that common right i mean back then uh everybody was trying to be like arnold schwarzenegger everybody was trying to lift weights and get huge and well this was in the 60s and at that point bodybuilding was still in its infancy i mean up to up to the 1950s bodybuilding was actually a really honorable profession it was it was pure there was no anabolic steroids. I mean, they didn't even have so much as a Flintstone vitamin. I mean, there was no creatine or, you know, protein powders and such. What was the diet like back then when, when guys would, like, try to get big? Like, did they have any idea of what the, the, the correct foods to eat? Like, what did... Well, yeah, for sure. A lot more emphasis was placed on health. Health was always first with a lot of these old old uh, bodybuilders, and, and um, they, they called themselves physical culturists. Right. Now, Jack Lane was one of those guys. Well, I, I first heard that term from you, actually. From I believe it was reading your blog or, or, or reading, you know, something that you had uh, a conversation that you'd had with someone. But uh, the the term physical culture, like being involved in physical culture, I like that term. It's a good term. But it's a throwback to ancient Greece. I mean, if you think about it, the standard for male beauty and male excellence for two thousand years was the ancient Greek statue, the Greek god, the yeah. Greek god. And you know, if you look at the sculpture from that time, it's just magnificent. Something got very skewed right towards the end of the 60s, early 70s. 
And a lot of it was the anabolic steroids and, you know, guys, let's, let's face it. It's the human condition, right? If, if people will do things because they can do things and people just wanted to get as big and freaky as possible. It's a bit of dysmorphia too, isn't it? It's, isn't it sort of like, like an anorexic that doesn't realize they're so skinny looking or a woman who has enormous fake breasts and still doesn't think they're big enough. There's some sort of a weird uh, psychological condition where there, people can't see themselves. There's definitely a disconnect in there somewhere where they 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 have a very skewed image of body image of themselves. But uh, yeah, back in the '60s, it was pretty innocent. Still, I mean, steroids existed, but it wasn't prevalent. Most of the uh, information, if you're looking for really good solid information about sports training, uh, you have to go before 1950. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I mean, that's when steroids be, uh, began to make uh, inroads into Olympic weightlifting. And, oh, and of course, I that's see. when the, the Eastern Bloc really started getting into this stuff. Of course, it's not like, you know, the U.S. didn't have, you know, plenty of drugs, too. Sure. But, but in those days, you know, it was still legal in the, in the early days. But you had asked me about what do guys eat back, you know, the mighty, yeah. mighty men of all, just normal food, just good, basic food. Uh, they drank a lot of milk. Milk was considered a bodybuilding food. And you can trace that clear back, you know, thousands of years ago, even into uh, India, where they would uh, the Hindu wrestlers would would drink the milk and eat eat almonds and in an, in an effort to get uh, build mass in their bodies. So it, it's been well known. Well, everyone you know talks about lactose intolerance and and things along those lines, but a big issue with lactose intolerance is just homogenized and pasteurized milk. And you know, I've talked about that in the podcast, and people have said, "Yeah, well, if you don't do that, people are going to get sick." And that's not because of the milk; it's because of the way we're raising cattle. It's because of what we're putting in these animals' diets. It's because these aren't healthy animals, and if these aren't healthy animals, and the milk isn't treated properly, if it does get somehow or another contaminated by E. coli or things along those lines, th- that's not because the milk is bad. It's because somehow or another it was handled poorly, and people got sick because of it. But this idea that pasteurization and homogenization is the only way to go with milk is really ridiculous. I mean, it, it, it kills is, all the enzymes. It is ridiculous. I mean, people have been drinking milk literally for thousands of years. I mean, animal husbandry goes back 10,000 years, you know? And to my way of thinking, the modern cow is just a, I mean, it's just a very sickly animal. Even though they give these things steroids and they, they give them all sorts of antibiotics and, and and all this stuff, they're feeding them grain. Cattle were n- never meant to eat grain. They eat grass in, in the nature, in, in the wild. And then, like you said, you know, you superheat the milk and you cook it literally to death until there's nothing left in it. No wonder people have and, – and then on top of that, people are drinking milk combined with all other, other kind of stuff and overburdening their digestive system. Uh, over-drinking milk, and, you know, your body develops an intolerance. Yeah, people have this aversion to um, bacteria. Uh, But what folks have to get in their heads, like this idea that homogenization, pasteurization is the only way to go because it kills all the bad stuff, but it also kills the good stuff. I mean, sure, you're going to get some protein and calcium out of milk that's homogenized and pasteurized, but 
you're taking in cultures when you're drinking milk. You're taking in a part of that animal's body. And the closer it is to being alive, the better it is for your body. That's why meat is supposed to be consumed medium rare or rare. Like that's the best way to eat meat. You're going to get the most nutrition out of that food. When the only time you're supposed to cook a, 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 a like meat past that is when the animal is assumed to be sick. Like the reason why we cook pork to 150 degrees is to kill trichinosis. And that's one of the reasons why with, um, with factory pork or with, um, you know, uh, what's the best word for it? Farm pork or domestic pork. Domestic pork, they're now saying that you, they're lowering their standard. They're lowering it down to, I believe, 140 or 145 degrees because the instances of trichinosis are so rare. In fact, 90% of all trichinosis cases in this country come from eating bear meat. Interesting. I've had yeah. bear meat, by the way. It's delicious. Yeah, it was absolutely. It was black bear. Yeah, corn-fed black bear. Corn-fed. Yeah. Well, really? the, the bear. The bear had actually been living uh, outside this farmer's field, and a friend of mine uh, actually shot this thing, and uh, had prepared steaks, and had told me, "Hey, listen, I'm coming up to Philly to train some jujitsu with you." This guy was a firearms expert. Uh, he, he actually taught firearms for the FBI. And he used to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu with me when I had my school in Philadelphia. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, bear steak. Jesus, this sounds <laughs> really sick, man. <laughs> so I was trying to think of every excuse for not eating it, right? <laughs> so he comes up. He takes my wife out for a shooting lesson at the local range. I, in the meantime, make some dinner for myself. And then I'm going to give him the excuse, well, I was so hungry I couldn't wait, right? <laughs> so he's so hurt. He's so hurt because, you know, he had made this especially for me. So I says, oh, what the hell, you know, I'll have a bite. Dude, it was absolutely delicious. And then I was ashamed of myself, like, wow, man, I wish I would have waited for, you know. So I saved it and had it the next night. Yeah, bear is very good for you. Shockingly uh, delicious. delicious. You just have to make sure you cook it correctly. Like a smoky beef. Yeah. But, but uh, you have to also have to make sure that the animal hasn't been eating a lot of fish. When they eat a lot of fish, they can get funky. Like if you eat bear, or if you, you catch a bear that's been eating like a rotten moose, and then for real. <laughs> well, yeah, any kind of scavenger. Well, like they're that. omnivores. The sca- yeah, whether they're scavenging and so forth. But, you know, back to uh, quality of food and so forth, an awful lot depends on a person's ability to digest their food. It all comes back to digestion. If you can't digest it, then you can't assimilate it. And a lot of the molecules of this undigested food passes through the, the gut membrane and creates this inflammatory response in the body. That's how these people are getting a lot of their int- food intolerances and so forth. When the digestion is in line, your immune system is in line. You don't get sick. Bacteria doesn't bother you. I mean, the, I, in, in many cases, when the immune system is really, really strong, you, you even fight off cases of worms and all sorts of stuff. Your body is is amazing in its resilience. Do you follow anything like a Gracie diet or one of those things where you uh, c- don't combine foods to give your digestive system a bit of a break? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I was originally introduced uh, to the Gracie diet by Horian Gracie, the oldest son of Elio, and then later Elio himself. I spent some time with Elio. I actually stayed down at his ranch for almost a month one time in Brazil and Really? Wow, that must have been amazing. Oh, man. It, it was. What year was this? So this was the year that Hoist fought in Copacabana and lost to Valige. Oh, okay. So it was that? probably 96, maybe? Was that 96? Yeah, okay. It was Somewhere around there, yeah. I want to say. Maybe yeah. I'm a little off. Might be 98, 99. Let's find out. Anyway, yeah, keep I, going, please. I, I kind of forget. But at any rate, uh, 
that's when I was became aware of food combining. And then I, I did a lot of research and reading about it. I read about this guy, Herbert Sheldon, who had a clinic in San Antonio, Texas, and cured a lot of people from a lot of different diseases and sicknesses using food combining and fasting. So I got really, really uh, interested. And then later I read this guy, Dr. John Tilden, who wrote a book called Toxemia Explained. He was a turn-of-the-century physician, and he cured many so-called incurable diseases just through diet and fasting alone. And the basic premise is when you overmix a lot of food in one meal, there's a real tendency to overeat. When you overeat, you overburden your digestive system. And, of course, there's a real tendency to put on body fat. So when you eat just, let's say, for example, uh, I have a fruit-based meal, a starch-based meal, and a protein-based meal. Occasionally, I'll have some light dairy with the fruit, but a lot of times it's just fruit by itself. So occasionally, a little bit of nuts. With a starch meal, I will usually stick, stick with something like uh, sweet potatoes or a potato. But occasionally, I'll have wheat-based product. I don't have any gluten problems whatsoever, mostly because of the way I combine my foods. And I can have that with some vegetables and so forth. And then I'll have a, a, a protein meal. And all these meals are interchangeable. I can have my protein meal for breakfast. I can have my protein meal for lunch and so forth. And usually with the protein meal, if, if it's really cold or I'm really hungry, I'll have a little soup. And I'll have a raw leaf green vegetable salad, occasionally a couple of cooked vegetables. But basically meat and vegetables. And when I say meat, I'm talking about fish, fowl, you know, all, all the type of flesh foods and so mm-hmm. forth. And since adopting that, I, I feel fantastic. I'm like 61 years old now. I still feel really good. Uh, you know, I've been able to maintain a really low fat percentage and keep my energy and health because traveling is brutal, man. I mean, I'm in a different country every couple uh, couple weeks. And as you Ruthless know, on the immune oh system. Oh, my God. Flying can kick your ass, yeah. man. A two-hour flight, 12-hour flight, doesn't matter. Mm. It's just really debilitating to fly. Something about the air and the, I, 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 I radiation know. as well. Yeah, the electromagnetic fields from the plane. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's hidden that people don't even realize that can make flying pretty hard in your system. But I, I do okay. I really do. The radiation thing is pretty shocking. When uh, I first started, uh, someone was talking about X-rays. So I said, "All right, well, let's let's look up how much radiation an X-ray does cause you." A fucking airplanes way more than X-rays. And, you know, people do it all the time. All the time. And those poor stewardesses and flight attendants and pilots, I mean, those guys must be beat down on a regular basis. It's very – your body, once again, your immune system, when you're you're eating in accordance with nature and you're not overburdening the system, overburdening your digestive system and so forth, uh, your immune system is pretty strong. Your body can handle just about anything, really, but it does make you tired. It can make you quite tired. So rest – becomes really important and i don't know about you but like i know you fly all over the place to do your uh, your comedy act and so forth and uh i find that if if i rest up really well and don't do anything too strenuous i i bounce back pretty quick i find that um also um i have to exercise when i land when I land, that's my, my secret to avoiding um, the real feelings of jet lag. I get to uh, the gym, I hit the elliptical machine, and I just do a hard half an hour on the elliptical machine. Just something about it forces my body into that sort of recovery response, and that kicks everything up a notch, and it just seems to really help keep my energy at high levels when I fly. But depending on what time of the day I'll land, uh, one of my secrets for making the transition, the second I get on the plane, I reset my watch to whatever time zone I'm going to be in. 
sometimes I'm flying many time zones. And then I immediately try to adapt my eating plan to the place I'm going, which means often skipping a meal. Uh, occasionally I'll even fast and not just drink water the whole time I'm on the plane, don't eat anything. I figure it's low activity anyway. And then uh, the second I land, I'm like you. If it's in the early part of the day, I'll take a, a nice walk. I, I, I do this thing called Russian breathing ladders where I work the breath. Uh, it's It's fantastic. It's, you match the the, uh, the inhale exhales to your steps, and you see how many steps you can get up to on the inhale and how many steps you can get on the exhale. So you might be taking like 20 steps in one inhale and exhaling over 20 steps, and you'll keep that going. That's really interesting. Um, I do something similar in the isolation tank. Just to, to clarify what I said earlier, I was incorrect. Uh, it's actually the same as an x-ray. A seven-hour flight uh, from New York to London, you receive the same dose of radiation as a chest x-ray. From New York, New York to Tokyo, it's two chest x-rays. So that's where I had gotten it wrong. So, you know, six, seven-hour flight is like an x-ray. That's still a lot. I mean, like yeah. when you go to the dentist, right, you always see the uh, the hygienist jump behind the curtain. She doesn't yep. want to <laughs> – when you're supposed to just doing this x-ray, right? Harmless x-ray, but you never see her in the room with you, man. So, yeah, they run away. Yeah, it's, it's they, kind of they're covering your balls and your your, your, your your chest and thyroid with, with a lead shield. So, obviously <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, it's not as harmless. <laughs> yeah, especially if you think about poor pilots. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty crazy when you really stop and think about it. It's pretty nuts, though, man. So you you were it was ninety eight, which is Hoist Gracie's uh, Walid Ishmael fight. Okay. Um, so you went down there in 1998. You stayed for a month with uh, Elio Gracie. For folks a, who don't know, Elio Gracie is you know, one of the most important figures in the history of martial arts, if not the most important. Him and Carlos Gracie uh, essentially created what we call modern Brazilian jiu-jitsu. They started the, the revolution. And since then, there's been a lot of innovation and a lot of change and a lot of growth since that time, since uh, you know the 1940s and 50s and 60s and then on through the Hickson, Hoist, you know, all, all these guys that uh, came up afterwards, you know, through the 90s. And then once the Ultimate Fighting Championship came around, boy, it just skyrocketed. Now jiu-jitsu. And your son, Max, is uh, really... Zach. Zach, excuse Zach. me. Zach Maxwell. Excuse me. Zach um, fought in Metamorphs. Yeah, yeah. He uh, Wow, he really did a terrific job. That kid was tough. He fought that Sean Roberts. Yeah. That guy's like a real submission machine. So, you know, I was a little nervous. But, Zach uh, is slick. He's, he's slick. He's a very relaxed guy. But, you know, he was one of the first uh, generation of American children to grow up in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu system. I started him when he was really just a little, you know, uh, when uh, I was laughing when Krom was talking about the uh, invisible jiu-jitsu, mm -hmm. you know, more like invisible pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't so subtle with the pressure I put on poor Zach. Really? It was <laughs> But he he really uh, he grew up in that whole system. Was uh, that because of like the way your father pushed you into wrestling? Uh, probably. You know, it was an unconscious thing. I had a little bit of that little league syndrome going on there, uh -huh. and uh, maybe uh, maybe looking to you know live some type of get some type of fulfillment through my kids. You know, I mean, there was all that crap going on. Well, I have girls, but uh, I teach them jujitsu, but I make it fun. You know, I have them arm bar me and, uh, you know, I just show them where to put their legs and how to pull and how to, you know, how to set up the position. And I show them the mount. But what's really fascinating is, you know, you're familiar with the, uh, the concept that there's certain things that get passed on through genetics. In fact, uh, they've proven that with certain mice, that they can take mice 
and they can institute, they, they can put a smell in the air. And when that smell happens, like a citrusy smell, they'll give an electrical shock to the feet of the mice. Like they have, they're standing on this thing. And when they smell this smell, they zap their feet. Not to, not to kill them, you know, just enough to like make them like Wake realize them like, yikes, this is not good. Their children with no electricity whatsoever smell that smell and a panic ensues. They have a panic response. So it's passed on through their genetics. Cellular memory. Yes. My three-year-old, when her and my four-year-old, uh, well, her and my five-year-old uh, started rolling around, um, the three-year-old would take the back and go over under. Okay. She throws the hooks in and she goes like this and she hangs on. I was like, that's crazy. I was like, she's, it's almost like instinct. Like my, they were rolling around and um, the older daughter like turned sideways and the three-year-old went like this. And then threw her legs over. And I was like, that is fucking crazy. Because she did what I've done probably a hundred thousand times. You know, but it's in my mind, you see the back, you get that over under, you throw the hooks on. I mean, it's just instinctively. So to see a little three-year-old immediately do it, I'm like, I wonder if that's in their genes. I wonder if that has somehow or another been passed on. I mean... We will never know, but it's an interesting theory. We may in our lifetime. I mean, we may, they may be yeah, able I to. Yeah, I mean, they might be able to figure that Illuminate that. But uh, human beings are natural grapplers. I mean, mm. All mammals are grapplers. I mean, even orca will wrestle sharks. There was an amazing film in New Zealand of some tourists that uh, uh, there was a female orca with her calf training the calf how to hunt. She, gra- she hit a great white from underneath and stunned it and grabbed it and turned it over. Sharks need to continuously move in order to breathe. When they turn over, for some reason, they go docile. So she held it upside down until it drowned. Yeah, and then I've seen they, that. Then they ate the liver. Yeah. Once again, grapplers, man. If you think <laughs> about it in nature, prey animals are strikers. And predators are crappers. Sure, cats. Day, what do cats do? They cats. immediately they get a hold of the neck and then they dive under. They go to full guard. The, you know, I mean that's super common in the cat much world. The neck bite, man. Yeah, there's a, a crazy video of a lion, a female lion, killing a wildebeest, and uh, the way she kills the wildebeest. Not a wildebeest. Um, what are those pig-looking things? Not a, was it a warthog? Yeah, I guess it's a warthog. A warthog. Uh, sure. Yeah, crazy-looking tusk. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they're. <laughs> But she, she dives on it, she bites its neck, and then she rolls under it. I mean, she pulls guard on this warthog and then slowly chokes it out and kills it by holding onto its neck. And it's fascinating to watch because it's totally like watching jujitsu. I was, I was in Bali, and I stayed right across the, uh, the road from the monkey sanctuary. Uh, and the, the place where I was staying in Bali, uh, the monkeys would just overrun the place yeah. like a couple times a day. The whole troop would just come walking through. Hundreds of them, right? Hundreds, man. It's kind of scary. Don't leave your iPhone laying around in your room key or anything because little suckers will grab it. And then you, you, you have, have to give to, them something. You have to bribe them to get it back. <laughs> but I was watching Did these, that happen with you? And that, well, I almost got my iPhone. <laughs> but uh, I, I would be working my iPad a lot of times because I make my living doing online personal training. Uh, aside from seminars. So I'd always be working at the wee hours in the morning when this monkey troop would come through. So I bought like just one of these cheap little wooden slingshots. And you know, you don't even have to shoot at the monkey. You just pull it back and they start to scream and run away. They're smart (laughs) enough to know, like I guess enough people are shot at them, you know? So they would take off and leave me alone. But uh, I would watch these young monkeys wrestling 
And my God, it was jujitsu. They were using the guard. They'd put the feet in the hips. They'd flip each other over. They would go to the back. It was really fun to watch the, the little suckers doing jujitsu with each other in the morning. And of course, they, they used the neck bite like, like, you know, like a cat. Like Have you ever seen the documentary Grizzly Man? I, I saw the one part where the uh, the bears are going at it. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, the documentary. I never amazing. watched the whole thing. Oh, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite. Documentaries. That was Werner Herzog. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I did see part of that. I just kept thinking to myself the whole time, "What is this guy thinking, man?" Yeah. You're just you're just a meal, you know. <laughs> yeah. He was crazy. He did, he had a lot of issues for sure. I mean, as you delve deep into the documentary, all these different people from his past start talking about how crazy he was. Uh, it's a it's actually an unintentionally hilarious documentary. It's really quite funny, but. When the bears are going at it, it's full jujitsu. It's full jujitsu, like yeah. full guard. The bear gets side control at one point. I mean, it's and then the other bear hip escapes and gets back to guard. I mean, it's he, he it's it's crazy. I mean, it's you watch how they're doing it. It's like these bears are using a form of jujitsu. It's very similar. Back in uh, the seventies, I uh, went down to Atlantic City, and uh, I used to be really into arm wrestling. It's actually pretty good. And uh, I actually won the uh, the East Coast Resort Championship in Atlantic City uh, <coughs> in my weight in, in arm wrestling. I was a college wrestler at the time. I wrestled uh, Division One NCAA and uh, did a lot of strength training in those days. And uh, the the half the halftime entertainment was Victor the Wrestling Bear. And do you remember the karate guy, movie guy, stunt guy Joe Hess? No. He was fairly well-known uh, martial arts guy at the time. He did a lot of Hollywood stunt work and so forth. Anyway, he went out to <coughs> wrestle Victor the Wrestling Bear. And it was amazing how this bear would use single-leg takedowns. Really? It, it would grab him behind the Achilles and put his big old bear shoulder and head against the thigh to take him down. It was just really amazing to watch this bear go to work. Like he actually had moves or something. So and, he would go for a low single. Yeah, he would. He would, <laughs> and he would take this big. This guy probably weighed about two forty, two fifty. This Joe has, and if you saw him, you'd probably recognize. Him. He used to play a henchman in a lot of movies and stuff. Anyway, he was throwing this Joe Hess around, and this was just like a little black bear. And then people could wrestle the bear, you know, uh, if they wanted to. The bear was muzzled, of course, and uh, it was really amazing, man. You did had, they cover the bear's claws with anything? Yeah, they had like little pads around the claws, hmm. but. You had no chance against this bear, man. I mean, no no chance whatsoever. Yeah. Frighteningly strong, this animal was. And it was really funny to watch. Yeah, the comparison, the, the relative comparison of strength between a person and an animal, it's so ridiculous. We had a two-year-old chimp on um, uh, news radio, this uh, show that was on once. We had, I don't even think we ever used it on the show. I think it was one of those scenes that just got cut. But the chimp was hanging around the set, and the chimp trainer, and they were explaining to me how you can only have babies. Like, you can't have, like, a grown adult male chimp. Like, that crazy lady in Connecticut. Like, they don't do that. They got her face eaten. Well, it wasn't her. It was her friend. Right. It was taking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Her friend got got uh, attacked by the chimp but the woman who was keeping this chimp was fucking insane because trainers don't even do that they don't spend time alone with these things because they're fucking dangerous they are dangerous and then they start to think and act like they're human because they've been humanized yeah and uh, there's been cases where s- some of the animals become sexually aggressive towards the the females you know, yes imagine it's a it's basically a teenage you know a yeah. mammal 
and they don't have any outlet. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, they don't have any sexual outlet other than masturbation or frogs. If they catch a frog, you ever see one catch a frog and they fuck a frog? It's like 98. They had the same genetics, 98% that yeah. we do, so they're going to have a lot of crazy human characteristics. And it's, but it's no morals, nonsense. ethics, no, no understanding morals, of no language. Nothing, no, man. you know, they don't understand the concept of doing someone harm. They, it doesn't even mean anything to them. But this two-year-old chimp that we had was on my back and just playing with me, just like smacking me like every now and then, like just joking around. And I was like, this is freaky how strong this thing is. Crazy It was only like this big. You know, it was this little tiny thing. And I was holding it and it was like hanging on to me and then it would like rotate on me and then it like, like slapped my back. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this little baby could probably fuck me up. You know? And imagine a gorilla. Oh. I was, um, I I was uh, part of a... uh, Arthur Jones, had a, uh, the inventor of Nautilus, had a ranch down in Florida. And he was uh, he, he used to be an uh, uh, animal hunter and trapper. He used to catch animals for zoos. He had um, white rhinos. Uh, he had a huge herd of uh, the in biggest— In Florida? Yeah, yeah. This is in uh, uh, Lake Helen, Florida. He had his uh, big uh, Nautilus Medical Sports Industries down there. And, uh, you know, he, he owned giant jumbo airlines. Uh, airplanes. He, he was a pilot. And uh, I mean, it was crazy. He had the biggest private herd of elephants. So he would fly them in on planes? Uh, he, my, my father was a uh, inspector for the Federal Department of Agriculture. He actually inspected Jones elephants when they were. That's how I got to uh, go down to the ranch and, and meet Arthur Jones. I wouldn't even imagine you could get a fucking elephant on a plane. Uh, they had those big cargo jets, and they would fly like those this... military style yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. And he um, wasn't that a movie, Dumbo Drop or something, <laughs> something like that. But he he was uh, he had, he had, was an elephant hunter at one point, and felt pretty bad about uh, slaughtering elephants. So uh. he decided to do some conservation work. And uh, but at any rate, he had a, a pet gorilla named Mickey. And uh, this Mickey, they actually uh, sedated it one time and put it on an old Nautilus pullover machine. It's pretty funny picture i actually had it in my gym at one point this gorilla but uh, i saw mickey throw a fit with its trainer one time and uh, threw a head of cabbage at the guy because it was pissed off about something i don't know but hit the guy in the head and knocked him out wow just a head of cabbage dude imagine the power maybe the guy had a glass jaw i don't know <laughs> it, it, it looked to me like it's the back side of the head but wow uh, knocked this guy out man yeah i bet it was just coming the, 300 miles an hour it, <laughs> For sure, man. I mean, you didn't not want to. I mean, it just gave you the idea just how powerful these animals are, man. Yeah, we can't even wrap Crazy. our head around what an eight hundred pound primate would be like. The, the kind of strength that they would have, it would just be ridiculous. A, a chimpanzee. They say that one hundred. Is this him right here? That's him right there. Yeah. The photo up there on the screen. That's it. Wow. <laughs> Mickey the gorilla. I can't believe the guy kept the gorilla. Well, I can't gorilla. believe you found that picture. Nice uh, <clears throat> research, man. Powerful Google. I actually had that. Uh, that poster oh. in, in, in my gym at one point. They say that a chimp is, a 150-pound chimp is supposed to have the strength of a 500-pound man. So what does an 800-pound gorilla have the strength I, of? My God, it's just unfathomable. Yeah, it's they probably just, just tear you apart, just pull you pretty to pieces. Pretty much, pretty much. And, you know, you just have to wonder about <clears throat> these researchers laying out there in the grass with these things, you know. It's oh, like, you ever see them stand fossies. still? It's like, good God almighty, man. When they bluff charge you, you can't move? Ooh, man. You have to stand still? It's... Oh, too much for me, man. Oh, <laughs> well, you know they didn't even know that gorillas were real until the early 1900s. It was just a legend. 
They they that was a, a recent discovery as far as like uh, you know biologists would just hear about these things that lived in the jungles, <clears throat> but they didn't have any real evidence of mountain gorillas until. I think it was like 1910 or something like that. And they finally started seeing them and taking photographs of them. Can you imagine the first person to stumble across a fucking gorilla yeah, and realize that's a real thing? Blow your mind, man. It's only a hundred years ago. Of course, in those, guys, in those days, they were into trophy hunting and they're probably just shooting the hell out of these things. And they're pretty peaceful from what I understand. I mean, they let you alone. Yeah, I'm, they're, well, they're I'm, there's a lot of trophy hunters now. Reclusive and all that. Yeah. What was really amazing to me was the, the, the chimpanzees, uh, they commit murder and rape. And the different tribes actually hunt each other, and they're cannibals. Yeah, you know they're not the cute little things that you. Uh, they're they're nasty little guys. Yeah, that's I mean, another thing about chimps. They didn't find out until the '90s that they even ate meat. Yeah, they're omnivores. Just yeah. pretty much. Well, like I said, ninety-eight percent of our uh, of our DNA. That's the crazy thing about gorillas that they're not. Gorillas are huge, enormous, muscular beasts, muscular beast, super aggressive, giant canines. Eh, they eat sprouts and shit. Bamboo. A yeah. little bamboo. It's nuts. Yeah. Well, they have that enzyme where they can process uh, the the cellulose. One thing that differentiates us from, let's say, a lot of other, uh, let's say, like uh, sheep, cattle, but even gorillas, they have a digestive enzyme that breaks down cellulose. Human beings do not. That's why a lot of people, they go into veganism and try to do all, all raw food diets don't do so well. You can, uh, Human beings cannot process cellulose. So... All the nutrients that are bound in the cellulose fiber cannot be absorbed or assimilated into the body. So we have to do things like cook food, you know, like uh, broccoli, for example, is completely undigestible. But yet you see it in every salad bar. Really? So when you eat broccoli raw, you're just doing nothing? You're not getting much. Really? It it becomes a digestive irritant, really. Same thing with cauliflower. That's why they should be uh, cooked or steamed to, to break down the cellulose. Or you can juice them. The high-speed juicing yeah. process. You take the, the cellulose out of there, and then you get the nutrients and so forth. Do you cold-press juice? You ever you ever have cold-press juice? Well, you know, because I'm on the road, I don't have kitchen implements and so forth. But for sure, I would if, you know, if, if I had a permanent setup. Yeah, there's a, a company near me that sells cold-pressed juices. And, God, they're so good. So good. And they're, I mean, the, this company, they, they have, like, cabbage and all these. I mean, they don't taste the best, but, God damn, you just feel the nutrients when you drink it. It's like your body just goes, yes, you know, like it does a little Diego Sanchez yes cartwheel <laughs> when you when you drink it. Diego's a character, man. Yeah. I, I worked with him down at the University of Jiu-Jitsu. What a, what a good guy. Well, man. you got him in probably with the best shape of his life when he fought BJ Penn for the title. You know, I, I remember he was, that in amazing shape. I mean, BJ is an incredible fighter. Let's face it. His skill set is just like amazing. And uh, the only thing that was probably keeping Diego on his feet in that fight was the fact that he was just in such superb shape. It would have been more merciful if he wouldn't have been in shape because then he could have just got knocked out. I mean, it, it was really bad, the cuts and so forth that he, he got. Well, the cut is what stopped it, and that was that big head oh, kick. Oh, it was just awful, him. man. He, his face was really laid open. It was very sad. Yeah, he got caught early in that fight, too. He got hurt, like, moments into the first with a, a right hand. And then it's just, I don't know. I mean, even if he wasn't in shape, Diego's just got such an incredible will. I mean, uh, I don't think I've ever seen. Will, man. I don't think I've ever seen a guy with a will that strong. I've never seen a guy able to push himself to such an nth degree. Look at that picture of him. He looked fantastic in that fight yeah, too. He, really did. he doesn't look like that now. Oh no! Well, maybe he's trying a little bit different way. Or whatever. well, he just doesn't look as muscular or strong. 
You know, he's uh, he's 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 smaller now. I think maybe he sacrificed a little bit of uh, muscle mass for maybe more cardio. But he's also fluctuated back and forth now more. Like he's done a few fights at 170, like with Jake Ellenberger, Martin Campman, and then he's he's gone down to 55, and he goes back and forth. He actually said that before his last fight, he ate some bad beef tartare and got sick, and uh, that he had like some sort of a food poisoning that sapped him of his uh, his uh, strength um, before the Miles Jury fight, his last fight. I thought that was crazy that he would eat beef tartare like like right before he fought like a major ufc fight without knowing like the source of i think he ate it at like a hotel you know he was in vegas well been a long time wrestling competitor i I wrestled all through the 60s and 70s and and then later i got into brazilian jiu-jitsu i was very animate about never eating anything different (laughs) you know when it came you know within a day or so of the fight so mm. I would never experiment or eat anything unusual or no way, man. Yeah, I think I would think Diego would – I think it was Dallas actually. No, I think about it. I don't think it was Vegas. But, you know, I, I was shocked that he would do that. He would eat beef tart. I mean, that's a risky thing to eat too, raw beef. You well, yeah, you just don't know uh, these hotels. I mean, yeah. what you're going to get in these restaurants and so forth. Uh, usually when I travel, I try to use Airbnb. Airbnb? Airbnb. What's that? Uh, It's a website where you can rent little apartments or or even little cottages and houses. And they're all over the world. Oh, bed bed and breakfast. Yeah, bed and breakfast. B-N-B, yeah, dot com. Fantastic. uh, 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 So much cheaper than hotels. Plus, you don't have to go broke going out to... uh, dinner all the time in restaurants and so forth because usually these places have, you know, stoves or ovens and, you know, you can cook. Sometimes you'll lock out and have a blender or something, you know, and, I mean, wow, it's really good. You can buy your stuff and bring it back. Oh, that's nice. So you go and go to a grocery store. That's got to make a huge difference. Huge because... difference when you're traveling like I do. Yeah, it's tricky, right? I eat out a lot, but, uh, you know, with the kind of diet I have, it's really not that hard. A lot of times I'll just go to grocery stores and so forth and, 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 and buy the food and bring it back. I find, believe it or not, in Europe and even Russia, I was just in Russia not uh, too long ago, uh, the food is superior to what we have in the United States. Really? Uh, How we, so? They, well, they don't have agribusiness there. You know, if you go into an average uh, supermarket in the United States, you'll see all the fruit. It's perfect. It's all waxy and shiny and everything's lined up. And, and of course, unless you're going to like an organic place, you know, like Whole Foods or something. But if you're not buying organic produce, you know, the produce always looks so uniform and so pretty, and but it tastes kind of like cardboard. In Europe, it looks like they've just picked the apples off someone out of someone's backyard. I mean, sometimes they'll have, like, holes, and they're irregular shaped. and I mean, it just looks like, you know, like fruit you'd pick off a tree, and absolutely delicious. You go down the aisle of a U.S. supermarket. Let's just take the cereal aisle, for example. You might have, like, 80 choices. There you might have, like, five or six. People don't overeat like we do here in the States, and the food is much simpler but really delicious. It's not hard to feed yourself in Europe. So the vegetables are closer to like like heirloom tomatoes, like that exactly. type of thing? And you can taste the difference. Boy, have you ever had – folks who've never had heirloom tomatoes, you know, you see the tomatoes that we have in stores today 
um, a lot of times what you're getting is these genetically modified tomatoes that are surviving for long periods of time since they've been picked to the time that you eat them. They can last weeks and weeks and weeks, which is not normal. I grow tomatoes, and if I take one of my tomatoes and I pick it, then I put it on my counter. In a couple of days, it starts getting funky. That's right. You want to eat it quick. You want to pick it and eat it within days. Um, but these store-bought tomatoes that you're getting, you know, where that have been modified, they're pale and they're hard, and they like they can take a beating. A regular tomato is like kind of a mushy fruit. It does, they don't really they don't stay firm that long. And a lot of the nutrients and so forth, uh, there's just not there. I mean, yeah. they're grown in nutritionally depleted soil. They're harvested early so that you know they have a longer shelf life. They're genetically modified. You know, like apples, for example, you know, they, they have these storage apples and, you know, people are eating apples during the winter and so forth. But I mean, these things are like really old. I mean, they've been around, yeah. you know, in storage, cold storage. They're not getting the nutrients like they could if they were eating in season. Yeah, I've started over the last couple of years, <clears throat> started growing my own food. Growing my own food and my own eggs. That's a big one. I have my own chickens. And, uh, I mean, these chickens are pets. Like, my my three-year-old daughter picks them up and she can carry them. I mean, they're pets. And they run around the yard. They they eat grass and worms and they eat food. They eat table scraps, too, which is great because food that, you know— we necessarily might not eat. You know, you scrape a plate off. It doesn't have to look pretty. You know, like leftovers, you know, we, we, we do eat leftovers and we, you know, we'll seal them and put them back in the refrigerator. But like the stuff that's just sort of like a little bit left on your plate, we'll just take a little bit of that, like from everybody's plate, put it on a plate, put it out there for the chickens. And they go nuts for it. You know, we don't feed them chicken, of course, but, you know, we'll feed them beef and we'll feed them vegetables and, you know, they'll, they'll eat all sorts of different things. That was like Elliot Gracie's farm in Terrazopolis. You know, he lived up in the hills and he had his own farm and he had his own chickens that were free range they would, they would bring the eggs in he had his own herd of cows that were just grass fed he would milk those cows every day from the raw he used to bring me he knew I liked milk he'd bring me a pitcher so frothy from from the cow's teat set it on the table for me to drink that would be my breakfast a liter of raw cow milk wow he would make cheese from that milk his own brand of cheese with no salt or anything, just just like a, a fresh, non-age type cheese. Uh, he would go down to the pond. He had this big spring-fed pond where he would fish, catch the fish for that night. Uh, vegetables were grown in a garden. Uh, he, you know, you hear about these SIA drinks, you know? Most of them are just sugar water, just frozen sugar water, this SIA buy in the supermarket. Yeah, SIA is a berry, a uh, Brazilian berry, this Guarana it has this uh, sort of uh, – it's, it's got a, a stimulant effect to it. Extremely uh, uh, high in all sorts of nutrients and so forth. Antioxidants. But uh, it tastes really bitter. It's not, a, it's not a sweet fruit. He would pick the acai off the tree and come in and actually literally juice the acai right there for, excuse me, fresh on the spot. It was amazing, man. You know, there's coconuts. There was uh, these little tiny bananas he would get. I mean, he was basically living off off the land, you know? Mm. It was really cool. I think the only thing they would buy, they would have rice and stuff occasionally. But for the most part, he was just living off the food that he produced on his farm. I want to do that. Self-sufficient, man. <clears throat> That's my ultimate goal. I mean, I'm slowly working my way towards that by growing a bunch of food around the house. But... It's that's that's the solution. I mean, I, I thought about it. I was like, everybody wants all these things. Everybody wants. I want a boat. You know, I want a vacation home. I want a this. And I'm like, how many people that have money ever 
raise their own food. No one ever says, hey, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to invest in a patch of land and in soil and farming tools and the, you know, the, the, you know, heirloom seeds and I'm going to grow my own food. Nobody fucking does that. It's, it's a weird thing. People's uh, priorities are very skewed. Very yeah. skewed. It's, and, uh, well, you know, like with my own example, I mean, I wasn't always this way, but uh, I, everything I own is in one 65-liter bag. One 65-liter bag. It's in the trunk of the car. How big is 65 liters? Oh, uh, it's about mm, maybe like 14 inches high by about 28 inches long. Wow. And that's it. It wasn't always that way, of course. I had the four-story brownstone house in Philly and the... You know, a gym and the uh, Brazil, uh, the first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy in the the Eastern Seaboard. Maxercise, right? Maxercise, even before Henzo. Or I heard guys. about that place back in the day. Well, you were back one of the, the first American black belts. I was one of the. I, I don't know what the ranking, but it's certainly one of the early ones. What year did you get your black belt? Two thousand from Helson Gracie wow. in Hawaii, and then um, I was Hoist Gracie's uh, training uh, trainer for his first. So you got your black years. belt when you were in your late forties. Uh, I yeah I did. Wow. I was forty eight years old. I'm wow. sixty one now. So what was two thousand? So I was what fifty eight. Wow. So when you were training down at uh, Alios place, you were still brown belt. I was a purple belt. Purple belt. Yeah. Wow. And it was, how did you get invited to go down there? Uh, I was with Hoyce as his trainer. I was trying to prep him for the Valigi fight. Oh, so you were a strength and conditioning coach. So I was his conditioning coach. And uh, I was pretty close with Hoyce. Uh, his wife used to actually be my kid's babysitter. Oh. And I knew her when she was going to medical school, Marianne. She also taught uh, aerobics and was one of my exercise instructors. And very knowledgeable woman when it came to exercise and fitness and things. And uh, she was actually going to get her degree in podiatric medicine. And uh, Pediatric? Is that what you mean? Po- podiatric. Podiatric? Yeah, what she was a foot doctor. Oh, oh, podiatry. Yeah, podiatry. Okay. And then uh, I I used to bring Hoys, and he would stay with me for a prolonged period of time. He, he stayed with me for, I forget how many weeks. It was a really long time. And, uh, you know, my wife and I, we're older, and, you know, we had this young Brazilian kid. What are you going to do with this guy? So uh, I said, Marianne, she was a really pretty girl, you know. I said, hey, would you just take him out? I mean, just do something, anything, you know. So she was doing it basically as a favor, you know, a little bit under protest, you know. But she she, she took Hoyce out and, showed, and they fell in love. Oh, It was awesome, man. <laughs> I mean, it was so cool, you know. That and is then, cool. And uh, then he was supposed to go back to California, and we had a huge blizzard in Philly. And all the airport was shut down all that stuff. So he stayed like this extra week. And that was the first snow that Hoyce had ever experienced. In fact, no kidding. We made a snowman together. And of course, he put abs in the snowman and <laughs> had this snowman with this with this big butcher knife, and it was you know, a real macho snowman. And, macho snowman, <laughs> but it's so much fun. Of course, he wanted to drive my car in the snow. And I was like, "Oh my god, the fuck out of here!" Did you let him? Yeah. Well, oh, hey, man. it was horse crazy. You didn't say no, man. <laughs> How'd that go? He was actually an amazing good driver. Very. What very kind of car good. was it? It was a four wheel drive. A Subaru uh, front wheel drive. Oh, Subarus are great in the yeah. snow. Notoriously great in the snow. So yeah, no, he did great, man. He figured out how to steer to the skid, <laughs> scared the shit out. That of must him. have been fun though. To be, yeah, you must have been like a little kid. That was back in the early days, you know, when things were still innocent. Right. When I started with the Gracies, they were all one big happy family. What year was this? This is '89. I had my first seminar. I said, holy shit, this is what I've been looking for, man. 89. So you were way ahead of the curve. Way ahead of the curve. I I had, you know, after college wrestling, I coached for a few years in a local high school. 
I did the freestyle circuit, but hey, it's a young man's sport. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard when you have a family and you're working to actually go to a university and train with university wrestlers. And you start missing your timing and, you know. So I was looking for something to replace the thrill of wrestling. And I, what were uh, you doing for work then? Uh, I was actually working in a gym. I was a fitness director for uh, at the Society Hill Club in Philadelphia at that time. And so I'm just looking for something, man. I tried Kung Fu. I, try, I tried Kempa Karate. I tried a Japanese-style karate. I tried my hand at Muay Thai. I basically sucked at these striking arts, you know. It just wasn't in my, just wasn't in my genetics. I, I wanted to grab and clinch. Mm-hmm. It used to really piss my instructors off because it was almost like, you know, an instinctive reaction. And uh, I quickly learned that uh, you can avoid, like, in, you know, Let's take MMA and put it to a side. I was interested purely in self-defense at that time. You know, I always felt like somehow I missed the boat because that was the Bruce Lee era, right? 70s and and, uh, later. And I always thought like, wow, I shouldn't have been wasting my time with wrestling. I should have been doing like Jeet Kune Do or, or, you know, that Ip Man stuff. And uh, I, I didn't realize what a good basis wrestling really was. And the few scraps I did get in, I found that, wow, <clears throat> you know, double leg takedown goes a long way. You smash somebody down, it kind of takes the fight out of them a little bit, you know? And uh, what little striking I do, I, w- I was able to equip myself all right in the few scraps I had. But I still felt like it was something missing, just fancy kicks and punches. And when I saw that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, I said, man, I could do this. I could really do this. And then I saw the first Gracie in action tape, and I realized, wow, man, this is very doable. And so I went into it with this whole self-defense aspect in mind, which they really emphasized in those days. But, yeah, hey, it was one big happy family. The Machados had just split from Horan when I first met them. They went with Chuck Norris, as you know. Uh, there was, like, a bit of a you know difference of opinion or whatever. And then uh, after I'd been at the Gracie Academy for a couple of years, uh, I, I would fly from Philly. I had I, At that point, I had my own gym at ni- 1990 open. I would go out for a couple of weeks at a time with a certain budget. And I would take like $1,000 or whatever. And I would take lessons for $100 at that time with Horan or Hoist or Hoyler or, you know, Hickson. And I, if I got one move in that hour, I called it my $100 move. Because usually there would be, you know how it is in jiu-jitsu, especially when you're blue belt. You get really confused and you get in these positions over and over again. And you can't quite figure out what to do. And if they would give me the answer to that particular problem, I would say, oh, that was the $100 move. That was worth every penny to me because that's how into it I was. Right. And then I would go through my $1,000 or so, right, with the, with the private lessons. And, of course, they would throw the classes in for free since I was buying so many privates. And then I would go back, and I had mats in my gym. And then I would just call up all my old wrestling buddies. And there was a judo club nearby. I would call those guys in and – there was a keto guys down the street, and I would just basically beat up these poor guys. <laughs> and <that's laughs> they just didn't know what you were doing. I had no idea. I had the rest- judo guys didn't know any of it. Uh, they didn't know much. It was more, you know, judo became very sports oriented. But I, I, I did pick up some good stuff from the judo guys. Takedowns. Oh yeah, throws, some good throws and so forth. Trips. And but I had what they called wrestler jits, you know, and pretty rough, pretty rough stuff. A lot of strength, a lot of power, just like wrestling. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, what did I know? And right. uh, But I, I got my blue belt pretty quick, about six months, and I got my purple belt in about a year and a half, I think. 
I went through the ranks, but then I reached the level of my incompetence. <laughs> and there I stayed, purple buff, for about four years. How can, what do you mean, you reached the level of your incompetence? Well, I just couldn't make that next jump to brown belt. I was still using too much power, too much strength, too much athleticism, you know? Mm. And, you know, jiu-jitsu is supposed to be based on technique and relaxation, and I still didn't have that. I can remember one time Hoist got really pissed off with me. We were in the middle of a session, you know, and uh, I was being what, you know, in the jiu-jitsu world is sort of uh, rude. I was kind of grabbing the the gi in a rough way, and, you know, wrestlers have this way of kind of grinding heads sometimes, you know. Right. It's really pissing them off. And he says, hey, wait, this is the gi, this is skin. And then we wrestle a little bit. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you grinding your head into mine? What, what are you possibly thinking to achieve with this? And then he looked up at the clock. He says, okay, these next 10 minutes are going to be the most terrifying of your life, Steve. And I'm like swollen gulp. You know, I knew what was going to happen. He basically just wiped the mat up with me, squeezed me, smashed me, knee in the belly and the ribs, and he wouldn't let me tap. And he just basically thrashed me for 10 minutes straight. Nonstop. I was just utterly exhausted. Not to mention just the, the, the trauma of just being thrown around by your idol or your hero, you know, and who was mad at you. So there was that emotional thing going on. And then he says, okay, how's it feel, Steve? Feels pretty bad, don't it? And I says, man, it really does. He says, well, you know, that's what other people feel like when you wrestle them. He says, when you wrestle these other guys, that's what you're doing to them. He says, not much fun. You're going to turn people off from jiu-jitsu. So you better never, ever, I never better catch you again using all that power and strength and being so rude. And it was like, wow, okay. And then the next day I got the flu because it lowered my immune system. Wow. I mean, I'm telling Just you. getting your ass kicked. I'm telling you, he system. really kicked my ass, man. It was, wow. it was really traumatic. And I got the flu. And I was, oh, I was so disappointed because he's teaching these seminars. And I couldn't go. I'm on the couch with a fever. Oh, wow. But man, it taught me such an important lesson about relaxation and you know all that. Yeah, I learned that around probably purple belt too. Just learned how to relax and how to well also learn how to like do like a real twenty minute session. Like how do you roll with someone for twenty minutes if you're just going? Yeah, exactly. You can't you well, can't sprint for twenty minutes. In those days, I you know I still wasn't getting it, man. I wasn't getting it. But I, that beating really made a profound influence on me, and he did me a great service. Great service. I always liked that whole Gracie uh, teaching aspect of the mm. whole thing. You know, like like Horian always said. You know, it, it's not really a martial arts style. It's a it's an educational system. It's a way of teaching jujitsu. Yeah, I like their uh, motto: keep it playful too. You keep know, Henner and man. and uh, Huron they they uh, they say that all the time: keep it playful, keep it playful. And it, you know, you you can protect yourself while you're doing that, and then slowly but surely, a guy who's gonna uh, unless you're dealing with a three minute match. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have your opportunities. And, you know, I mean, I'm not against the competition aspect of it, but it is different. I know Allier told me one time that he considered the modern-day competition to be anti-jujitsu. I thought that was an interesting statement. He says, I would never I would never been able to win, like, one of these modern-style matches with the points and all that. So that wasn't my game. He said, I couldn't do my jujitsu to other people because I was too small, too weak. He said, they, they did it to themselves. Did Elio do any strength and conditioning? No, not that I know of. I mean, he did stretching and, you know, basic jiu-jitsu conditioning stuff, but he never really believed in weight training or any of that. But, uh, you know, he always mentioned how weak he was. But, uh, 
he did have a strength. His grips were pretty amazing, even for an old man. And of course, he had these huge Popeye-type forearms, you know? So, I mean, it was obvious that he he, he definitely had some athleticism and, and strength. But he was such a lightweight guy, there was no way he was going to overpower anyone. Right. But have you have you ever read the biography of Asai Maeda, the guy that taught the Gracie? No. Carlos? No. Uh, I read the Japanese translation into English. And, of course, it definitely had a Japanese prejudice to it. But that guy was a pretty amazing guy. He was a representative sent from the Kodokan. Shigeru Kano organized all the jiu-jitsu clans in Japan and was trying to come up with the one style of jiu-jitsu, which he called judo, the gentle way. In those days, there was a lot of ground fighting, uh, throws into joint locks. All the stuff that's illegal in modern-day judo was still part of the game. They had knee locks. Uh, I actually watched a videotape of old black-and-white footage some of these old Japanese masters were doing the X guard. Wow. Elliot told me that everything was there when he when, uh, when Carlos learned uh, jiu-jitsu from Maeda. But Maeda, a lot of people don't know, won over 1,000 no-hold-barred fights. It a also, thousand? A thousand. A thousand How fights. the hell do you fight a thousand times? I don't know. How's that even possible? It's like that Hickson 400 and O thing. Someone tried to break that down once of how, how I, long I would, would like take. to know, but he did... He, he did uh, stage fights in Spain and England and France. Then he came to the U.S. You mean on stage? You don't mean like staged, like no, no, yeah, predetermined on, on outcomes. stage. Like they would ask people from the audience to come up and challenge. Oh, okay, like those type of things. And there were no hold barred fights, or there were judo matches. There were no hold barred fights. Wow, they could do anything to the guy, and uh, he fought boxers. Uh, well, he 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 taught uh, was one of the guys that taught Theodore Roosevelt. The early judo, really, and that became uh, part of the the training for uh, naval avi uh, or army aviators during World War II, and a lot of the army guys uh, in World War II, the jiu-jitsu was the basis for the uh, self defense in the U.S. Army, and then uh, one of his cohorts was humiliated by a champion wrestler from West Point, and uh, Maeda got some Japanese businessmen to put up some money, and then he 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 beat the guy that that uh, beat his partner. And then from there, he emigrated to Cuba and did all these fights in Cuba. I mean, he was fighting, like, apparently for money a couple times a week. He went to Mexico, and they would go to the mining camps where these, these the, you know, or, or lumberjack camps where he had all these guys with a lot of money, and they would bet. And sometimes he would almost lose a match on purpose, to encourage guys to come out there and say, oh, I can beat this little guy. And then he would kick their asses. With, so it was like Charles Bronson in Hard Times, just it was the Japanese just like version. Japanese version. Wow. And he was only 165 pounds, but apparently he had some devastating throws, and his groundwork was just absolutely superb. He was And Jigoro Kano threw him out. It was on Budo-like. You're doing these fights. You're fighting with no gi sometimes. You know, It's not what we represent here at the Kodokan. So he was... Basically, the Kodokan is the main sanctioning body. Th- that was the main sanctioning body in Japan, of, in Japan at that time. And so uh, he kept going further and further down. And then, of course, the Gracies uh, met him and ha- helped him get a Japanese immigration colony started. The father of Carlos Gracie helped this Maeda guy get established. And uh, in, in gratitude, he, he, uh, he taught the, the five sons. Uh, it was Carlos, Oswaldo, uh, I forget the guys, but there was, you know, Carlos had the five brothers. The only guy that didn't directly get taught was Elio. Elio learned his jiu-jitsu pretty much from Carlos. 
he was a very weak, sickly child at the time, and uh, and they basically were doing the jujitsu of Maeda. Wow. And then Elio would watch his brother teach, and then it was discovered that, wow, he's really adept at this. You know, he has a real knack for teaching and doing jujitsu. Carlos kind of just handed the reins over to Elio, and then he took it and ran with it and developed it, and the rest is pretty much history it's so fascinating that even to this day the smaller guys are the more technical guys and when you think about the birth of jiu-jitsu happening from carlos teaching ilio and ilio being a small guy his jiu-jitsu became very technical like the last ufc we were talking about this when it comes up when the, the flyweights and the bantamweights these 125 135 pound fighters and I, i've said many many times if you want to see excellent technique like these are really the guys to watch first of all because they never get tired and two, because when you're a 125-pound guy and you're at the gym, you're not muscling anybody around. You're not muscling anybody. you got to learn to do everything correctly. Everything has to be proper technique. Everything has to be perfect form. You have a gravity and strength disadvantage from the jump. And so because of that, you learn to do everything absolutely correctly. I mean, you very rarely see like a, a really good light jujitsu guy who tries to muscle things. They, they don't try to muscle uh, Almost anything. never. Sometimes ex-wrestlers. And they'll do mm-hmm. that right up through about purple belt, like myself. And then they get lost. The, the, te- the, 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 the technique begins to outstrip their strength at the brown and black belt levels. The guys, everyone is strong, in good shape, but they have incredible technique at that level. So yeah. if you've been basing most of your, your winnings on athleticism and strength and all that, once you hit brown belt, man, Forget it. It's not going to happen too much anymore. Yeah, I've always said, man, if you could get a guy like Mark Coleman, who's such a dominant wrestler in his prime, you know, when he was a UFC heavyweight champion, if that guy just fell in love with jiu-jitsu and just was passing the guard, mounting, taking backs, taking arm bars, I mean, he would have just been a fucking beast. He would have been a beast. Well, yeah. All well, he guys. was a beast. Kevin, anyways, Kevin Randall. Still, all, all yeah, guys, all those man. guys. Yeah, I mean, none it, of them embraced jiu-jitsu. No, nah, they never did. It was always, you know, well, it's that wrestler mentality. I mean, I had it, you know, I thought I knew everything. And wrestlers are pretty aggressive guys and, you know, you're, you're very confident in yourself and there's a tendency to think you know everything. But smart wrestlers, you know, they eventually, they start to lighten up and they, they start to embrace the technique of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. It makes a perfect combination. It's real easy for wrestlers to just slide right in there, man. Sure. It's just about, I mean, that's the other thing about wrestling as opposed to jiu-jitsu is wrestlers are so much more drill-oriented. Wrestlers, like, by necessity, drill techniques a lot. Con- constant training. If you go to any high-level wrestling room, you'll watch guys hit techniques over and over and over and over and over again. Whereas jiu-jitsu... This is like a little bit of drilling, and then, okay, free train, everybody, yeah. let's roll. And everybody just roll, because it's so fun to just roll. So fun to just try to submit each other. That, you know, they don't, they don't do the same sort of drilling and technique-based training that a lot of wrestlers do. At the highest level, wrestling on the feet, the stand-up part of wrestling, is just as technical as jiu-jitsu in many ways. It's yes. very subtle, a lot of setups. I mean, it's pretty... Uh, amazing. What Those guys at Flow Wrestling, that, that web, you ever gone to that re- I, I website? Have, yeah. I love that website. Great website. But they do a great job of explaining that and showing how technical the European and the Russian wrestlers are and, uh, you know, how how much more they rely on those techniques and the subtle v- varieties of their, their exchanges and their entrances into techniques. I, I really like that. I like that emphasizing that aspect of the wrestling. Cause a lot of people don't know what it is. You see big, strong guys trying to overpower each other. You don't understand. This is like, 
There's so many different moves that are being exchanged at a rapid pace and, you know, so attacks and counters. And, yeah. yeah, feints. And I, I had the privilege of working with the five-time Ukrainian national wrestling champion, Andre Brenner. He used to come up to my school in Philadelphia all the time and train. And, wow, that guy showed me so much technical wrestling. And then one of my students was uh, uh, Yasushi Miyake, who was one of the judges for Pride. He was a fourth on uh, black belt in judo from the Kodokan, but he was also a three-time world Greco-Roman wrestling champion. Wow. And he was working for a Japanese import company in Philly, came into our school. Guy was, you know, th big, thick Coke bottle glasses, just this kind of silly little grin, really polite. He's bowing a lot. He spoke almost no English. And, you know, so we he wanted to train with us. So we gave him a gi, you know. He, put, he puts on the white belt, you know, no, no fuss. Next thing I know, he's launching dudes, man. It's like, oh my god! What a sleeper! This guy, what this, a sleeper! This, guy, this, this guy's a white belt, man. I mean, and you had no idea what his background dude, was. He's doing like Sagan Augies from the knees and throwing guys, man. It's like, wow! So we finally get the guy to write his name for us so we could Google him. And then we're what saying, year was this? This is like ninety five. There was Google in ninety five. No, there was like some sort of an internet search. There was some kind of internet because I, I was completely non-tech. I didn't even have a laptop in those days, Joe. I didn't even have a cell phone back in 95. So wow. I don't know. One of my students did whatever that you do on, the, on, on a computer and looked him up and found him. And then we said, holy shit. <laughs> you got a gem. This guy is unbelievable, man. And we were shocked. It was like three-time world Greco-Roman he was uh, uh, an Olympian in the Atlanta Olympics. Wow. He plays so just, just trying he to plays have just fun. out of the metal round. Yeah. He just wanted to train. And he was, I guess he had heard about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and wanted to try it out. And uh, he went through the ranks fast, man. I actually took him. The first professional grappling tournament was the Pro Am event down in South Carolina. Do you remember this? There was a couple guys that put it on, a couple what entrepreneurs. Year was this? Oh, man, I'm terrible for these dates, man. You really put me on the spot with these dates. Uh, but, but it was pre-Hoist uh, and Waligi, right? Uh, that was 98, was Hoist and Waligi when you went down to Brazil. I think it was, yeah, it was pre. Pre. And so I was probably Sala fought in it. Oh. Maybe it was 2000, after 2000. You see she fought in this thing and took second place against really good black belts at that time. I wish I could remember something. I know Hoyler fought... Uh, there was it was like a who's who of wow. like, grappling. Salo fought. He uh, he fought this catch wrestler guy. No kidding. It was real interesting. It was like a mixed grappling style, but it's called the Pro Am. It was like the first professional level type grappling thing. I remember it vaguely now. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. it vaguely now because, but I was still I was really I started in '96. I started. I took my first class at Hickson's. And then um, Hickson's was pretty far down. It was on Pico. And I found that Carlson had a place on Hawthorne, which was, like, really close to where I was working. So uh, I went to Carlson's. I, to me, I was a white belt. I was like, Gracie is Gracie, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and at I that stage. came in right when Vitor was fighting John Hess, when ah. Vitor was, like, 18 years old. And they were calling him Victor Gracie. It wasn't Vitor. It was, they had put a K in there. I don't, you know, I don't know why, what happened. They changed his name. I don't know what happened. But it was Victor Gracie. Victor Gracie. When Carlson was trying to uh, adopt him or was treating him like he was his son. And so he was taking on the name Gracie because the Gracie name was huge back then. Yeah, you know, well, 96, a sure. couple years after the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Everybody wanted to train with a Gracie. Everybody wanted to be a Gracie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And um, uh, I got a chance to see Mario Sperry was down there. Marilo Bustamante was training back then. Sergio Cohen, like all these like black belts from Brazil. Carlos Bajeto was there. They were the guys, man. Yeah, they were, man. really laid the foundations here in America, you know? I just got so lucky. I came in and I got to, I watched that all happen right during the extreme fighting days. Remember that? When uh, John Peretti was putting on those extreme fighting challenges and Half Gracie was there and, you know, Half Gracie was fighting in those. Remember oh, those? Yes, man. Those that was the back in the day. That was back so, in the day, man. Well, a lot of people don't realize how, your your uh, athletic prowess either. I mean, a lot of your listeners have no clue. I'm always shocked when I say, "Well, Joe is like world class athlete, man." People always say, "Really?" It says, "Yeah, he's not just a television host or a comedian or an announcer." Says this guy can rumble, man. I'll never forget when you showed me that spinning back kick on the banana bags in your garage. <laughs> I mean, they were 200-pound bags, Joe. You were bending those things in half. My ribs hurt just watching you do that, man. So a lot of people don't realize your pedigree in jiu-jitsu and submission wrestling and, 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 and kickboxing too, man. So, Well, I've been obsessed with it my whole life. You know, The only thing that's been fucking with me lately is I haven't really been able to roll hard for the last year. I've only rolled once over the last year. I had a bulging disc in my back, actually my neck, and I started doing this thing called Regenakine. I did a bunch of different therapies for it, uh, but... I was really worried about uh, pursuing um, jujitsu past this because I started getting numbness in my fingers. And uh, I had heard uh, a lot of horror stories. And I, I'm friends with Boss Rutten, of course. And Boss Rutten has had a pretty bad neck injury that he's had two surgeries on. And he actually just started going and doing Regenikin at the same place where I've uh, had it done. And so I went through a bunch of different procedures. And f after a year of different therapies like... Um, uh, I did uh, Prolo Ozone, which is prolotherapy with ozone, which stimulates healing. And uh, I did a lot of rolfing, like really hardcore deep tissue massage and oh, yeah, soft I'm tissue manipulation. Really familiar with rolfing. Do you do you do any of that? I was actually rolfed by Ida Rolf's son. Whoa! The guy, you know, she invented rolfing out of frustration because her son went through that polio epidemic of the fifties and was all twisted up. This poor kid. And she took him to specialist after specialist, and just out of she had a PhD in biochemistry, a very intelligent woman. Out of sheer frustration, she just started molding the boy herself, and came up with her ideas of rolfing, and then began to teach other people the postural integration techniques. I was rolfed by that boy. Wow, that's amazing. And he was an amazing rolfer. And then I had a woman in Philadelphia, Linda Grace, fantastic, one of the uh, professors at the Rolf Institute. They 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 go and teach for a while. And they they uh, they revolve in and out. You know, it's not always the same professors at the Rolf Institute. But this woman saved my life in my jujitsu career. I had some pretty horrific injuries. No one wow. ever said that playing combat sports is healthy, man. No, well, I mean, I had this conversation today with the doctor because uh, I've been. Uh, I have some photos of it that I'm going to put up on Instagram, but I'll show them to you what what this uh, process is. But it's pretty fascinating. What they do is they take your blood. And they, um, this is me lying on this table with all these needles in my back. And then oh, yeah. those little tubes on the end of the needles, that's uh -huh. where they pump this serum in. I'll put all these on Instagram later so you guys can see them. And what it is is you, they take your blood and the blood is placed in a centrifuge and it's spun around and it's heated. And somehow or another, 
during this process, like it treats your body treats the blood like the bl- the blood reacts as if it's having like if there's a fever, and so it generates this intense anti-inflammatory response, and this yellow fluid becomes the most potent anti-inflammatory medication known to man, and it's produced by your own blood, which is really amazing. So they pull this yellow serum out. And then they inject it directly into the injured areas with so dramatic results. It's your own anti-inflammatory. Yes. Well, see, that's you know we had talked about supplements earlier, right? Mm-hmm. And I uh, I used to be quite the supplement hound. You know, anywhere between two fifty to three hundred dollars a month, I was spending on supplements. And I quickly realized that I was actually undermining my body's ability to make its own anti-inflammatories. Your body, when it's being fed properly, and your di- you know your digestion is in order and you're assimilating the nutrients that you need from your diet, you make your own anti-inflammatories. And you do not need to be taking a lot of extra uh, nutrients. If anything, it throws you completely out of balance. Well, I'm, I'm sure that your body can make anti-inflammatory you know, responses to injuries, but nothing like this. I mean, your body is making it this, but with, with well, genius say that's just about that. this. You're, you're using your own body, yeah. so it's different than taking a sup. Well, it's also they're directly injecting it into the – this guy, Dr. Peter Welling, is a spinal surgeon in Dusseldorf, Germany, and he's the one who figured this out. Um, is He has this two, two-year study of osteoarthritis of the knee that's published in the medical journal, journal uh, Osteoarthritis and Cartilage, which uh, started uh, a lot of all this off and got a lot of people uh, invested in this, uh, this procedure. And they figured it out in Germany in like 2003. And the United States has really been hampered with a lot of this research because of all the shit that went down with stem cell research. The religious right was, you know, really putting the brakes on any sort of stem cell research, and they were connecting stem cell research with fetal tissue and aborted babies, and people are going to abort babies just to get uh, the fetal tissue. There was so much fucking craziness. It's craziness, man. And this this thing that they do, the the way that. It it, differ, it differentiates between platelet-rich plasma, which is uh, what a lot of people think of when they think of like blood spinning. Um, what this is, it's it's a little bit more potent, and I'm gonna I'll, I would butcher it. So if anybody's interested in it, read about it online. Uh, they call it orthokine in Germany, and it's called regenokine in America. But they do it in Santa Monica now. It's done in Vegas and Dallas, and they're doing it all over the place with miraculous results for athletes. There's a lot of athletes Pretty that have. Well, all these guys are were flying to Germany. Like Kobe Bryant was flying to Germany. Um, uh, what is his name? Um, Peyton Manning had two neck surgeries. He's ready to retire from football. Went and got orthokine in Germany, and boom, playing better football than hey, ever. It's pretty amazing those NFL guys. Hey, can we take a brief break? Sure. Yeah, I just yeah. need to hit the uh, head yeah, hit the head. Quick, Go ahead. Go co- ahead, man. That awesome coffee you gave me just went <laughs> right through. <laughs> Listen, man, it takes a while to get that used old, to. I got that old man bladder going on. There. Don't worry about it, dude. I'll uh, I got a lot of shit shit to talk about and let people know. Um, anybody who's interested in that uh, the place, if you're anywhere near Santa Monica. Um, the guy that I go to uh, for this uh, Regenikine thing, and I've no financial, just to, in the interest of full disclosures, no, I have no financial interest in this whatsoever. Um, his uh, his name is Dr. Uh, ben Ruhi, uh, and uh, he does it out of a place called Lifespan Medicine that is in uh, Santa Monica, and it's incredible stuff. And it's also... The, the beautiful thing about it is you don't have to worry about your body rejecting it. This is all something that your body naturally produces. So if you're interested, 
um, just run a Google search on it and find out if there's a place uh, anywhere near you that uh, that has this. But for me, I've had uh, amazing results with this. Um, and then uh, for from that and the raw thing and all these other uh, different procedures that I've tried, out of all of them, the Regenikine has had the most uh, dramatic responses because it's pretty dramatic and pretty quickly. Um, I've also found that uh, if you have any joint pain, if any people out there with joint pain, a big one for me has been fish oil. Fish oil is really incredible anti-inflammatory properties to it. Uh, I, I have a friend who's a carpenter, and he he's told me that through taking fish oil, like he used to get like really sore knees and elbows after a long day of work, just completely eradicated a lot of that stuff. Um, I take... I, I take pretty high dose fish oils. I, I mean, there's pros and cons, and people will argue that. Uh, I, I take ten a day. I take ten pills a day, ten thousand milligrams. And some people say that's overdoing it, and probably Steve would say it's overdoing it. I don't know, but I work out like a madman, and for me, it has a huge difference between when I take it and when I don't take it. I just feel like uh, I have less less joint soreness, which is uh, really important for me. He, I, you know, I, I would try what what you're doing, but I eat like a fucking a madman, and I just I don't see myself eating only uh, a vegetable meal and then a meat meal. I I eat like a fucking pig, dude. I don't know. I always have. I I eat less um, bad things. Like uh, I've, I've I eat very little sugar at this point in my life. Um, I, I will reward myself every now and then with like some ice cream or a, a treat, but for the most part, I get all my sweets from fruits. I, I, I very rarely indulge in any show. Like somebody offers me candy or something like that, unless there's pot in it, I'll, I'll, I'll eat a pot candy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not really into sugar myself, other than uh, eating fruit. You know, some people say, "Well, how about the fructose?" How about? The, but they they forget that you know it's all bound with fiber. Push up to this thing. And, uh, yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah. And it slows down the digestion. Yes. So that you're not getting this big sugar rush or anything when you're eating raw, natural fruits. Well, that's part of the, what's going on with this bulletproof coffee idea. The idea, which was uh, apparently was originally invented by Rob Wolf. I don't know if you know Rob yeah, Wolf, the paleo, the, yeah, paleo guy. Yeah, paleo guy, sure. Yeah, um, he was the, the guy who created it, and Dave Asprey is the guy who sort of uh, made it popular. But a lot of it because of being on the show. But the uh, grass-fed butter and MCT oil. Um, is what slows down the digestion of the caffeine because it's blended up together with uh, the coffee. That it just because when I drink, I like black coffee. I like to drink black coffee, but man, the difference in like the wow bang, wow bang. There's a big difference in the spike and crash with that as opposed to this stuff, which is like a slow burn. And that's also the same thing with eating fructose, which you get from an apple or from an orange. It's like you're getting it in a natural way. And it's also, it's sort of a natural reward system. Your body's getting this sweetness because you're, you're ingesting all these nutrients. Like your body's, it's letting you know, ooh, you feel that mouth pleasure? Good. Keep eating something stupid. We need all that stuff. You need the vitamin C. We need the fiber. We need the, you know, it's all good energy, good, good for your body, as opposed to this weird thing that we've invented where we figured out how to process sugar and pull it out of all these fruits and pull it out of corn and then just shoot it right in your fucking bloodstream. I mean, when you're eating that high fructose corn syrup, I mean, <laughs> your body doesn't know what the fuck you're doing. Like, what is this? How are you getting this? Never, never before in the history of man were there these type of frankenfoods. But I mean, even sugar cane. Yeah. Where white folk, I mean, have you ever actually eaten sugar cane? I have. When it, I lived in Florida, it's a whole different experience. It's delicious. It. Yeah, but I mean, you don't get that rush, right? Because it, it's 
What's a fruit? It's it's bound up with all the other uh, nutrients and, and and fibers and so forth that you get in a whole food as as opposed to a fractionated food. Yeah, when I lived in Florida, me and my friends used to cut sugarcane down. There was like a sugarcane field near our house that was uh, University of Florida in Gainesville. Um, they had uh, these, I don't know why they had sugarcane just growing there, but it wasn't like we were stealing it from anybody. It was just growing there. So we'd go and we'd cut it down and we'd just eat it. And I guess it's not a fruit technically because a fruit, you know, it's something that grows on a plant. You pluck it off the plant. Like tomatoes. A, a, a grass, I believe, maybe. Is that what it is? Yeah, I, I think it's a grass. Like tomato is technically a fruit, right? Isn't that how it goes? Like it's considered a vegetable. Agriculturally, it's considered yeah, a vegetable. Yeah, I, I believe it is a fruit. Like how it's taxed, I think they consider it a vegetable, but it's uh, it's a fruit. But, um, you know, the, the, the diet, I mean, man seems to be able to adapt to any number of diets. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, Weston Price, that went around the world. No. Uh, he was looking at indigenous people. This was at a time early in the 1900s when there was indigenous people still around. And he was looking for he- signs of health. He was a dentist. So, you know, tooth health is a very good indicator of a person's overall health. If you have rotten teeth, your general health is pretty poor. I mean, they've even linked gum disease to heart problems and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So he went all over the world. He was looking at every type of population possible. Uh, the Inuit, you know, the Polynesians, uh, you know, these different places. And he came to the conclusion that man is is a very adaptable creature. There's any number of diets that a human being can thrive on quite healthfully. But the thing that seemed to be commonplace to all these people was the purity of the food, the naturalness of the food, the, the freshness of the food, and the, the lack of stress in their diets and, of course, the exposure to sunlight and the vitamin D and so forth. And, I mean, in, in his estimation, the most magnificent of all the populations he studied were the Polynesians who were living primarily on a starch-based diet, taro and fish and coconut. You were the first person to also set me hip to the idea of um, sun tanning for conditioning, that sun tanning, the vitamin D levels get raised in your body and that – you know, like when George St. Pierre would fight with a tan, that there's that it's not for vanity. Like, no, no, not at all. It's uh, the the tanning salons have gotten a bad rap because people go in there and bake themselves, just like people bake themselves in the regular sun. But if you go in with the idea of not going for the tan per se, but to convert vitamin D in the skin, even if you're in a, a place like Iceland, for example, where you don't even get sun half the year, your body makes its own natural vitamin D. And you just go in for a few minutes, maybe uh, four times a month, and you, your body will make all the vitamin D you need. It's a very anabolic uh, nutrient. Uh, it's absolutely essential for immunity and uh, muscular growth and recovery, and it's really important. I had no idea that athletes actually would tan just to raise their natural levels of vitamin D and to aid in their conditioning, though. A lot of people don't even know about it. But uh, yeah, vitamin D actually even has kind of a steroid-like effect on, on your body. You know, with uh, it's very anabolic. D three, right? Yeah, D three is the big D3, one. Yeah. yeah, we had Dr. Rhonda Patrick on, who is uh, just a brilliant. Found my fitness is her name on uh, on Twitter, and we're having her on again soon. Fascinating, fascinating woman who is uh, just really brilliant and knows a tremendous amount about the human body, and it's just a great resource for us to be able to ask her questions about, you know, what does this and why does that work. And what is this about? How did Carlos Gracie, like he was the one who invented the Gracie diet, these combinatory foods. And yes. how did he figure that out? 
well, you know, there was another Brazilian writer that uh, talked a lot about food combining. I actually read a translation of his book. And uh, there was a lot of food combining people at the time. It was fairly well known back in the early 1900s. This Dr. John Tilden I told you about, uh, he wrote a book, Toxemia Explained. Uh, but there was also Dr. Herbert M. Sheldon, who wrote uh, uh, Food Combining Made Easy. It was fairly common knowledge to a lot of the uh, naturopaths and, and, and uh, alternative medical people back in the day. This was at a crossroads where the medical establishment was beginning to take over. And they were in, in cahoots with the big pharmaceutical industry. And... They, this is at the time when the, the, the drug companies were really beginning to develop a lot of vaccines and drugs. And that's when the Western medical model was all going towards the drug side. And they, they, the, uh, the, the chiropractors were getting pushed out and alternative people were being pushed out, osteopathy, uh, you know, naturopaths and so forth. But, uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of uh, reading and research on my own and uh, I – I pretty much uh, pulled away from Western medical model, and uh, I, I tried to do things as natural as I can. I haven't been to a doctor, Joe, in probably about forty years. So you don't ever get your blood work done, nah, or ch- you just nah. go based on how you feel. And if you don't feel good, what do you do about it? Like uh, I fast. Really? Yeah, yeah. Your body. Uh, if you don't feel good, you fast. Yeah. Like fat. if you're feeling like shit, like oh man, I feel like shit. I'm just not going to eat anything. Well, see, in a fasting state, your body. It goes to the morbid or diseased tissues in the body in its wisdom. It doesn't go to muscle. Really? Up. Yeah. Whoa. Your body is very wise. So when you're not feeling well, it's usually digestive system related in some way. And putting more food and burdening your body. People don't realize just what a burden digestion really is. It takes a lot out of you to digest food. Is that why people that have uh, lower caloric diets or people that eat less generally live longer? Well, for sure. I mean, in, in many animal studies, they found that by systematically underfeeding animals, you prolong their lives a really, really long time. You know, Rhonda Patrick, uh, who I just mentioned, uh, one of the things that she brought up was a study where they showed that it's it's actually a, a genetic transference that people who have survived through famine – their children actually live longer. Like the children of people who have had like less calories, their their children actually have longer lifespans. It's fascinating. Well, if you look at animal husbandry, you can your prize bull, your prize stallion, you know your stud dog. They have relatively short lifespans. The big muscular bull. You know they they feed these animals. They, they build a lot of mass. They do not live very long at all. It's because your system gets overtaxed if, to maintain all yeah, that muscle. Yeah, you, you become enervated. The, 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 you, know, you only have a, a finite amount of energy, mm-hmm. and it, it gets taxed. You know, that's a d- big debate, the amount of muscle you should have as a martial artist. That's a huge issue that comes up a lot. Um, it comes up a lot in my own commentary because I find it fascinating. There's certain guys, like the guys like the Hector Lombards or the Tyron Woodleys, these really muscular, like uh, abnormally muscular guys who are fucking hell on wheels for a few minutes. But they can't maintain like a guy like, say, you know, like a Diego Sanchez, a guy who's known for having fantastic endurance. Go, yeah. But Diego's worn a lot of guys out in that third round. 
you know, the third round is where Diego is the scariest motherfucker on earth because he's just as fresh as he was in the first. Like, look at Jake Ellenberger, who's a natural welterweight, brutal knockout puncher, couldn't put Diego away. By the time the third round came along, Diego's on his back, pounded on him when the, th- when the last bell rang. You know, and that a lot of that can be attributed to his ability to keep up that same pace, that ruthless pace. Doesn't have a, a lot of muscle. Well, a lot of it has to do with the type of nervous system you were born with, whether it's an efficient nervous system or maybe not so efficient. You know, uh, you, uh, they call it neurological efficiency. Guys with neurological efficiency are able to use a lot of their muscle fiber all at once, so they're like power guys. And guys that uh, don't have neurological efficiency, they usually have a high anaerobic endurance level. They just can go and go and go at a fairly high percentage. Isn't that but, fascinating? Like less efficient. Yeah. So uh, they have less power. They have less power, but they can go. Well, Hoist was a perfect example. Mm. The guy had unbelievable endurance, but he, he you know, he, uh, he didn't have a lot of fast twitch muscle fiber. He, he was not a power guy. Yeah, and that's not something that you can change, is it? Is like, can you no, ca- take that, a guy? That's an inborn thing. So a guy like a, you know, like a Kevin Roundman, never going to be a triathlete. Never. Never, never, never. Just like most guys are never going to be a Kevin Randleman, mm. you know? And all this idea that you can do Olympic lifting and do selective recruitment of muscle fiber, that's, that's a lot of nonsense, man. I, I've been in this game for a long time, man. I've never seen that. that you mean you've never seen someone who's like uh, got that ectomorphic exp- sort of— Explosively to make you more explosive on the mat. It's, it's, a, it's a big mistake. Doesn't do anything? I mean, you, it must improve it in some way. Well, I mean, any strength training, no matter how god-awful, is going to improve, especially beginners. But as you become more advanced, man, that explosive weight training does more harm than good. Take yeah. it for, to a guy that's 61 that's had every injury in the, in, in, in the book. Have, uh, you I, had, um, have you had disc injuries? Have you had neck? I, I, have. I what, have. What have you done to fix those? Uh, I, I did a lot of inversion training. Uh, you know, I, I used to hang upside down a lot. Yeah, I do that. You know, I, I like that a lot. It's huge. Uh, I, of course, my rolfer helped me a lot. I've had acupuncture to release some of that tension in, in the muscle. Uh, I, I've done some kind of uh, uh, other interesting stuff. I uh, I believe in the power of the subconscious mind to heal the body. I do a lot of uh, visualization and prayer and literally uh, image myself getting better. I believe that your, your mind and your subconscious mind is in control of every cell in the body and that if you can uh, get rid of any disbeliefs, you your your higher mind can actually influence healing in your body. Well, that's super unscientific. Yeah, but bold of you to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, because you're a fairly scientific guy. There's a lot. There's a lot we don't know. There's a very interesting book out right now. I'd encourage your readers to, or your listeners to check it out. It's called The Healing Code. They talk a lot about how the Healing Code. The Healing Code. Who wrote that? Do you know? Uh, let me see. Johnson, a guy by the name of John. There's an MD and a PhD that actually wrote the book, mm-hmm. and they they talk about it in in the relationship to like physics and 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 how belief systems absolutely uh, affect molecules. Well, they absolutely affect so many different aspects of your body, and for anyone who doubts that, the placebo effect is measurable. I mean, the placebo effect is nothing more than your brain thinking that it's got the cure. So it reacts as if it's got the cure, and then things get better. I mean, measurable amounts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Like, how Bizarre. many studies have shown the placebo effect? It all comes down to belief system and believing in yourself and believing that you have the power to heal. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know whether you're religious or not, but I mean, you know, you hear about the miracles of Christ and you hear the, the miracles of other prophets and so forth. I mean, you know, 
it's documented that the, a lot of these things happen. I don't, I don't buy into anything that's old when it comes to documentation of certain acts because it's so difficult to find out what the fuck actually happened. I find religious texts to be fascinating and enlightening in a lot of ways. For I think sure. you can learn a lot about what they learned about wisdom, what they learned about the correct path to living a happy, healthy life. But a lot of those principles, you know, the golden rules of of Christianity of Islam, of a, a lot of different religions, they, they essentially comes down to wisdom, life lessons learned over long periods of time, but then translated into sort of some sort of a weird mes- metaphysical uh, deity connection that gets a little sketchy, you know, like, you know, Christ rising from the dead and all this stuff. It's like, boy, what really happened? You're, yeah, you're talking well. about thousands of years of stories and over a thousand years before anybody wrote anything down, you know, stories well, over the yeah, campfire. Most of, the, most of the, the things that were written down were s- several centuries after the fact. So, yeah, I, I agree. But I, I have, uh, there, there, during the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a uh, movement in the United States and through Europe called the New Thought where people begin to realize that thoughts are things. It's an energy form. And that you, when when you think things, and especially when you say things, you're actually putting energy into action. It's the law of uh, attraction. So you're basically attracting what you're putting out. I mean, that's been long understood in physics. You know, that's that's basically, you know, what, what uh, Einstein was talking about. In what way was he talking about that? Well, for every action, there's a reaction. If you're putting out negative thinking, negative statements, you can only attract the same. It's virtually impossible for any good to come from bad. Well, it's funny how it's that sounds so simplistic, but it sounds very simplistic. But anybody who doubts that run into people that go, "Oh, fucking nothing good ever happens to me." Those people, you're right, nothing good ever happens to you. That's you know you have you have this mindset, and then you run into people that say, "Hey, you know, we're gonna work through this. We're gonna figure it out, and it's this is only gonna make us better and stronger. Let's keep pushing forward." Those people seem to always prosper. And I don't know whether or not luck is involved. I don't know whether or not it's all just your attitude. But I do know that the people that have that great attitude, I feel better when I'm around them. And it's, it's, it empowers me. And I feel like it enables me to also spread that empowerment onto other folks. Well, it's a whole energy. You know, it's like guys, that, oh, I can't afford this. I can't afford that. You're right. You can't. It's like going into a fight and you already thought you lose. You're going to lose, man. No fighter goes into a fight believing that he's going to lose the fight. If he does go in, he's pretty much going to get his ass kicked. Right. That said, if you're some guy who's not very good, but you've got this crazy belief in yourself and you fight John fucking Jones, you're still going to get your ass kicked. Probably. So it only works up to a certain point. It only works up to a certain point because then there's other factors that come into play. Yeah. There's you know, a lot of factors. The, 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 the positive belief system has to be grounded in reality. Yes. Right. You know, that I is mean, a obviously, big if I. You know, if somehow I could, could be convinced that I could fly and I jump off this building, I'm going to get splat. Yeah, you know? and the 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 you know people that are into like the secret will tell you you didn't really believe. Yeah. <laughs> well, may who knows, man? You know, I, I've I, my belief system doesn't go past a certain point, but maybe that's my limiting factor. But I do know when it comes to the body, you have a, an amazing capacity for self healing, and I, I've actually undergone it with my own body. Well, the people that really truly believe that we are in some way or another the vehicle of God, 
that is their, that's sort of what they point to, that we manifest our reality with our own mind and our own intent and with our own actions and our own thoughts. And that as we grow and as we evolved and, and as we get stronger and stronger with our consciousness and our ability to understand this, that we enact those powers more freely, more consciously, and uh, that, that our intent truly does create the very universe around us. It sounds a little ridiculous, but then when you start and think what, how much of an effect human beings have on the environment, how, how much of an effect human beings have on Earth, and when you stop and think about all the bad things that go on on Earth, whether it's war or pollution, well, what is that? It's like there's this, this lack of attention and a lack of intent on the important aspects of harmonious relationships with your environment, whether well, it's with people or... Let's take like just one small example of like how my belief system works about this. Uh, there's this one thing called the accumulation mindset, I call it. Uh, I work online with people on fat loss programs. And when you really look at their lifestyle, they're into this accumulation mode of just buying and amassing all this stuff. I've been in some people's homes where the shelves are just littered with stuff they never use or, or, or don't need. You know, they, they just have so much stuff. The attic is full of stuff. The garage is full of stuff. But they keep buying more and more, adding, 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 adding. Their bodies reflect this type of belief system. And for sure, they're adding more cells under their just body. Just indulgent. Just indulgent, you know. And then yeah. they find themselves overeating, eating more than their fair share of the natural resources of the universe, taking more in. Uh, I mean, it's just like this whole belief system in accumulation. Like, I need to add. I need to add. It's all subconscious, of course. No one goes into it, you know. Yeah, I have friends that are overweight, and when I watch them sometimes eat, I almost see, like, a person who's, like, consuming a drug. You know, you see them, like, they know they shouldn't have it, but they're like, fuck it, give it to me. Uh, uh, relief. You know, and I don't know what it is, whether it's a distraction from their own mortality, whether it's just some sort of a weird hitch in the system of the, the, the way the mind interacts with the world. Like it's just too much stress and too many variables and they need something to sort of inject them out of that. So they focus entirely on an ice cream sundae, Blah. knowing that they shouldn't even have it, go, fuck it, we're going to have it anyway. And so by doing that, you sort of block off all your awareness and just funnel that stuff down your fucking pie hole until you're it's like no. an addiction to the pleasure senses of the body. You know, you get like that little drug-like response mm -hmm. in the brain for a moment in time, you know, right? When you, when you eat this kind of stuff. And so you get like that little chemical reward that the brain puts out for having like this big thing of sugar or whatever, you know, you get that rush. But then that's quickly replaced with either disgust or self-loathing. Yes. But it sets up another cycle because now you get depressed again. But you need that little brain reward. And man, it, it can be... Pretty tough. And it really parallels with gambling addiction, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Same food addiction sort of is very, very common. I mean, if you think about it, you can kick cigarettes. You can kick most drugs. It's, it's Cigarettes are tough for most people. One of the toughest things to give up is that nicotine. But any drug you can give up, you can get off alcohol, all those things, right? But you don't need those things. But you do need to eat. Food addiction is very common, and it's the toughest one to give up because you can never not eat that's a very good point. It's a very good way of putting it. I don't, have, I don't think I've ever heard anybody put it that way. That's such an important way to describe it because you're always going to – you know, it's like if you were a heroin addict and you go, okay, 
I can't just shoot up until I pass out. I'm just going to shoot a little bit <laughs> now and then to keep me keep happy, happy. Yeah. I mean, that's really similar. You need it. You need food. If you don't, and if you're addicted to food and you need food. Yeah. I've had friends that lost a lot of weight and they look great. And like, oh, you look great. You lost all this weight. And, you know, a year later. So easy to do. Well, yeah. think of it as a species. Our survival depended on our ability to lay down a rapid layer of body fat. We were programmed to overeat and eat as much as possible because food was not very prevalent. Right. Now in this modern society with food, you know, so easily to get, I mean, our genetics actually work against us. Right. It's probably like why sex addiction exists as well, too. Like it was hard for human beings to breed and even harder for them to stay alive. So it was imperative that we breed as much as possible to spread the population as far as possible. And so that that pleasure reward system that's in, in place to make sure that you keep breeding just throw, is a hiccup gets thrown into it. When you inject it into modern society where you don't really have as many issues about breeding, but you still have this genetic impulse to constantly need to, to fuck the and spread breed, your seed. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff your face, breed. But I don't get the gambling one. The gambling one's a weird one, right? Where the, where the hell did that one come from? Well, that's still a brain reward, you know? Right. You get that rush, that excitement, you know? But why? why? I guess to take risks and the rewards of Well, like... these guys need to get out and do a sport right. and replace it with that. But instead, right. they get it from the, the rush of, you know, putting it all on the line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, well, I mean, think of like some of the adrenaline sports like rock climbing. Some Ugh. of these crazy dudes like climbing without safety harnesses or ropes. Alex Hanold. We had him on the podcast. Ooh, we had the the, who, who the, the craziest of died? all. The one kid, uh, the the one free climber, just died recently. But that's just I one. I don't know who died. Oh, uh, there was a guy that was written in Outside Magazine. They did a little tribute to this guy. But... I hope it's not Alex. I, I hope not. I, I would have heard if Alex died because he's the the yeah. craziest of all of them. We had him on the podcast. He's the most mellow kid ever. But think about the base jumping. There's two mm-hmm. crazy dudes that jumped off that tower in Dubai, you know? Ugh. That's some – but that's the type of, you know, adrenaline rush. But, you know, like guys like you and me, we get that going on the mat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's – I think that is a big thing, the pushing yourself and the 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 reward of – and that's the difference between a martial art as well. Really, in my opinion, the difference in jiu-jitsu as opposed to all the other martial arts because – I I enjoyed kickboxing and I enjoyed taekwondo. I enjoyed uh, competing. I, I certainly got a lot out of it. It certainly shaped me as a man. But I never felt good when I knocked somebody out. I always felt weird. The, to the body wasn't that bad. It didn't bother me that much. But man, when I when I would head kick guys and watch them fold, oh, it was a terrible feeling. Pretty sickening. I never enjoyed it. I never felt good. And even worse when you get head kicked. <laughs> yeah, way worse. I got lucky. I, I got stopped only once in my entire career. And it was a kickboxing bout. And it was more out of exhaustion than anything. It was the third fight in, in the night. I, I, I won my first one by KO. I won my second one. It was a... It went two. It were two. A two round. Uh, both of them were two. It was because you fought three times in a night. So there were two round fights. So uh, first one I won by KO. Second one was just... Uh, I kicked the guy's ass. But then I had a long period of break between the second fight and the third. And I was just fucking exhausted. And I was kind of sick, too. 
And then uh, I got hit with a left hook in the second round. My, my legs just gave out. But I was conscious. It was nothing bad. It was like, and then that was the last fight I had. And I was in the middle of like doing comedy and competing at the same time. I was saying, you know what? If I can get out of this with, think about all the shit that I did to people. If I can get out of it with just one left hook to the face. Because my instinct initially was, I'm not going out on a loss. Fuck that. I'm coming back. I'm going to find that guy. I'm going to beat the fuck out of him. And, and my initial instinct was to start training like a fucking madman. Abandon comedy. But that was emotional. Within a week or two, I sort of realized Reality, I have a different... Common sense, that's it. I realized I had a different goal, too, that I I changed the way I train. And I wasn't training like I was when I was younger and when I was completely obsessed with competition. Now I had all these different requirements. I was now no longer living with my parents. Now I was feeding myself and I was working and I was worried about my future. I was like, what am I going to do for a living? Like, what am I doing here? I'm teaching. There's not much money in that. And I what am I going to be a kickboxer and get fucking brain damage? So there's all these very, so I was terrified that I was going to run into me when I was 19, who was just a psycho that just trained constantly and lived at home and didn't have many bills and just every day I'd get up and run hills and stairs. And just all I was thinking of was I got to do things that other people aren't doing because that way I'll win, you know, and I wasn't doing that anymore. So I kind of recognized it. So I was like, if I can get away with one loss like that, like that kind of loss, we're good because I didn't want anybody kicking me the way I kicked people. I just fucking, I'd seen it happen to friends too. Like good friend, my my friend Larry, he, when we were like, um, he was a little bit older than me. I think I was 18. We went to this tournament and uh, he fought this Canadian national champion, this guy named Jersey Long. And he got hit with an ax kick in the head. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget watching this guy whip his leg up like more than a, a split and slam that heel down on my friend's face. And he just crumpled. And I was like, that is just not something I ever want to happen to me. It's and, a pretty brutal way to make a living. Man. And when you do it to somebody, it doesn't feel good. When you choke someone out in jiu-jitsu and they tap, it doesn't feel bad at all. No. You know? I it's mean, a different thing. Yeah, you're not hurting them. I've never broke anybody's arm. I mean, I've never in, in, in class, I've never, I mean... I've seen guys get injured, you know, accidentally, knees blow out and stuff like that. But it's always an accident. It's never, you know, never an intentional thing, at least on my behalf. So I never felt bad about it. So I got all that, the competition, the thrill, the energy, the excitement, all the the charge, the adrenaline, without any of the bad karma feelings that you get from kicking somebody, you know. Because there's something about, you know, that kind of competition where you have to put... Almost, you have to put your humanity aside in order to to compete in in a mixed martial arts or in. That's why I tell people, like when people come to me for advice about fighting, while well, I'm thinking about fighting, well, stop right there. Because if you're just thinking about it, don't fucking do it. Don't do okay? it. Okay. If you if you have to be completely obsessed, and if you're not completely obsessed, you're gonna fight someone who is, and you're gonna get fucking killed. Think about someone who's not completely obsessed fighting Vanderlei Silva in his prime. Just imagine that, okay? And then do you want that to happen to you? No. Then don't do it. But if you want to be Vanderlei Silva, if that's your destiny, then do it. But unless that's your destiny, unless that is you, that's, and I don't know what the fuck anybody, I don't know what makes someone want to be a folk singer. I don't get it. I don't understand. Someone has it in their head to get up every morning and do macrame, and that's what they want to do. That, that, I would never discourage it. But you must have that in your head if you want to be a fighter. You have to only have that in your head. If you have anything in your head, any doubts, if you have any problem with giving people concussions, get out. Don't do it. Because you're going to run into... I don't believe in dabbling in fighting. It's no, like people... You, so, can't, you cannot do it. No. It's... Uh, 
like you say, the the risk to benefit ratio of that type of activity is it's just it's just terrible. So when you've had injuries and you've done what you say is uh, prayer and meditation and focusing, what is the process? Do you put yourself in a certain particular state when you're trying to heal something? Like, how do you go about doing it? There was a really famous uh, uh, guy by the name of Neville Goddard who uh, uh, wrote about the power of visualization. A lot of it has to do with visualization, visualizing yourself as as whole, as being well. Uh, You know, there's like like there's a... you know, we were all born with this perfect DNA blueprint, but then we get skewed somehow as we get older or through injuries and so forth. So I try to visualize like being like that, that perfect little kid that had full mobility and ability to move and so forth. And there's a step-by-step process. You, you literally generate the feeling of being that. Fighters do this all the time. You know, they ge- or, or, or great athletes like... Uh, you know, like a, a John McEnroe or somebody. You know, they 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 able they had this power to visualize themselves in certain situations and prevailing or or winning. And I mean, in in all walks of life. You know, well, they, I certainly know people that. use visualization whether they yeah. know it or not. Even if they're unconscious of it, they're still using it. Yeah, there's certain folks that just they have super confident and they I only see myself winning. But there's other folks like I know Frank Shamrock talked about that a lot that he used to go through. He was a, a big proponent of visualization. And when he was in his prime and he would go through all these different scenarios and see himself winning, go through all these different scenarios. And a lot of people, you know, don't give Frank Shamrock enough credit. Like back in the day, Frank was the original well-balanced mixed martial artist. I mean, he was a fantastic fighter. I'll in, never in forget that match he had with Zenobia, man. That was oh, like, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that was a quick one. You know, that was a crazy slam and he broke his collarbone and fucked him up. I uh, just... That devastating double-A pickup throw he did was like, wow. Frank was an animal. Yeah, well, how about, you know, when he beat Kevin Jackson with that arm bar in Japan to win the title? No, you know. Or the time he beat, uh, uh, who was the, the, the bad boy? Uh, Tito Ortiz. Tito Ortiz. That he out-cardioed him. And not only that, he was way smaller than Tito. And, you know, he used jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. He basically was repeatedly taken down by Tito Ortiz, used the guard as good as any jiu-jitsu guy I've ever seen. We get back to his feet. Tito got tired taking mm-hmm. him down. Yep. And he couldn't do anything with him because he used beautiful guard work. I was shocked at how good his jiu-jitsu was. Well, that was an important fight for MMA as well because that was an important fight where people understood the benefit and the, the need for cardio because Frank had tremendous cardio. Frank was also training with Maurice Smith, who was a huge, huge cardio, cardio fiend. Maurice would swim. He was a, an animal. He would just get. He would put those weird paddle things on your hands mm-hmm. and just do lap after lap. And that's how he wound up beating Mark Coleman. Same strategy. Mark Coleman took him down over and over again. Maurice defended while he was on the bottom, and then eventually got up. And he was fresh still because his cardio was so good. Mark was exhausted. Then Maurice started kicking the shit out of his legs. You know, Maurice implied that strategy, applied rather that strategy many times. And, you know, I think Frank learned a lot from Maurice in that respect, too. But that fight was a big when you think about how how young MMA was back then. I mean, when did he fight Tito? Was that 96 or something like that? Somewhere around there? Yeah, it was really in the early days. Really in the early days. So three or four years into the UFC. No, it must have been after 96 because I was there for Tito's first fight, which was 97. I was there, um, uh, Wes Alberton, I think he fought. He came in as an alternate. I was there. I interviewed him. I think he was 19 at the time. And, uh, and he won in that fight, and then he got submitted by Guy Metzger. He, Guy Metzger caught him in a guillotine. 
And then um, he went on to, uh, when he fought Frank Shamrock, after that fight, he became a cardio machine. Cardio machine, man. And he taught a lot of guys that, like, when I talked to Kendall Grove, after Kendall did time on The Ultimate Fighter, came out like a much improved fighter. And one of the things that he said to me, Kendall said, I learned from Tito that cardio is everything. You know, these guys it learn. Be everything. So we saw that, that growth, you know. We saw these guys learning. Like, well, sure, as it's evolved as a sport. Well, you know, I... I don't know whether I ever told you this, but I was one of the original investors in the UFC. My ex-wife, really? and I, DC Maxwell. Yes, Horry and Gracie puts that first UFC together in a shoestring budget in Denver. Wow! And he was going around to all his friends, and we were all kicking in a little bit of money. And you know, I had a little extra money saved up. I I actually had a retirement account as a school teacher, and I had some money sitting in the bank. I said, sure. And so he went to like a whole bunch of different people, put it together in a shoestring. And thus was born that first UFC, and he wanted to use it as a showcase to show the superiority of jiu-jitsu or basically what happens to you if you don't know how to fight on the ground. And then he picked the most unlikely guy because he could add Hickson, who was just a, a stud, but he was afraid that people would say, well, that's Hickson. Look at the physique. Look at right. the athleticism. He wanted to pick Hoyce, who was a really nice kid, pretty thin, wasn't particularly strong. He was perfect guy to showcase the technique of jiu-jitsu. There's also the, what I had heard was that he, he couldn't control Hickson and that he didn't like that Hickson was, well, Hickson Hickson was, his was own a bit man. of a wild man. Yeah, he's his own man. You yeah, know? I mean, he, still he, is. He wasn't going to tell him what to do, man. Still is. And Hoist was a very young, naive kid and, you know, he's pretty, yeah, he, he pretty much listened to what Horian told him to do. And it just makes it amazing what he did in those first UFCs. But the big difference was the no gloves. Mm-hmm. Everyone was breaking their hands. Yep. And I'm telling you, you take the gloves off, you would still see wrestlers and jiu-jitsu guys win almost every fight. But for the average audience, I think it would be boring. I They think... want to see the spectacular knockouts. And, you know, you're not going to get the spectacular knockouts with the bare fist like you would with those gloves. Man. You would with knees and uh, you yeah, would well, with I mean, kicks, though. Yeah, for sure. Muay Thai is advanced but it'd be a lot tremendously, less, though. We had Orlando Veet, who's like one of the the, the best early guys, striker one guys. He's a really high-level kickboxer who was in the early uh, UFCs. But um, I, I agree with you. You wouldn't see nearly as much punching to the face. You, you, your hands break. All guys would have to do is just duck their head down. You hit their forehead. You know, if you want to punch me in the forehead, shit, go ahead. Go for it. That, that used to be Hickson's strategy in uh, self-defense. You know, he'd just like headbutt the hand. And yeah. It's pretty much done, man. But the other thing, too, was with the no time limit thing that they had back in those days, you know, where you just go and go, mm -hmm. that, that was very terrifying for a lot yeah. of guys. It oh, was yeah. like, oh, my God, you know, I feel my gas going, and people are just literally just And you can't recover. Panic. Yeah, there's no sitting on a stool, ice bag on the back of your neck, have a sip of water, somebody's picking your feet up, relaxing your leg. There's none of that. You know, you just got a fucking Mark Kerr on top of you, they dropping had, elbows in your face. They had the hair pull, and they had the punching oh, yeah. to the testicles. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was, it really was, and that it really is amazing what Hoyce accomplished when you think about that. You the know, guy fought three or four times in one night. Gee, it's impossible it's crazy, to, to underestimate, to underemphasize it. I mean, or or, or overemphasize it. Uh, what what an amazing thing he accomplished. It really, truly is. And that fight he had with Matt Hughes. That wasn't the same Hoist Gracie, you know? I mean, that was pretty much him past his prime. In addition to wearing gloves and not wearing the key, I mean, it was just everything. I, I know he must have felt incredibly uncomfortable in that particular fight, you know? Well, he was also fighting a monster. And Matt uses a monster. And he was fighting a monster at 175 pounds. He didn't want to lose the weight, so he let Matt Hughes be even fucking bigger. 
And Matt Hughes is a goddamn gorilla and has really good jujitsu. Matt Hughes really out jujitsu him. I mean, that was the thing about what Matt Hughes did to him in that fight. He took Hoist's fucking back, flattened him out, was pounding on him. The fight ended with Matt Hughes having both of his hooks in on top of him. He is in classy jujitsu. Yeah. What Hoist did to guys thousands of times. He was a gorilla. Matt Hughes back then was a gorilla. He had these neck muscles. Like, you look at the back of his neck, it's like he's got two kielbasas. Not, not even kielbasas. <laughs> like, what are those li- really fat salamis, you know, <laughs> that go from the, the base of the spine outward towards the traps? I mean, he's such a fucking animal with good technique. With good technique. Great technique, and by the way. So, some of the guys, some of his sparring partners, I saw like a video clip. It was like a who's who of like mm-hmm. high level jujitsu guys, mm-hmm. and he was more than handling himself in, in the in the jujitsu room. Yeah, and he'd already been through scraps with guys like BJ Penn. He had trained on a regular basis with uh, you know really really high level guys, both at Pat Militich's and other gym. You know, I mean, he had guys to train with him. On, on a, he's just he was constantly around guys that were like really really high level and he was being pushed in title fights he was being pushed in like in Hoist had been out of the game for quite a while but boy did that sell you know everybody wanted to see it everyone you know? wanted to see it but it, it, it to me it was uh, it was kind of sad it was a, well you know, you know Hoist was really a hero to me you know i right. just hated to see because people sort of undermined him i see uh, UFC has uh, uh, become so much more sophisticated, and mm-hmm. look, there's old ones. You can never hang with these guys. It's, it, that's that's not true at all, man. It, it was just. Well, it'd have been really interesting to see Hoist in his prime in with, his a prime. with a gi versus Matt Hughes. That would have been really interesting. That would have been an interesting fight, man. Yeah, it would have been interesting. But it's also you got to realize that one of the reasons why Matt Hughes was so good is that Matt Hughes had benefited from all the lessons that we had all learned sure. from Hoist, from sure. Hoist entering into UFC one, UFC two, and then of course Jeremy Horn, who was training all the time with Matt, who was a huge student of the game and one of the most technical guys. Like Jeremy Horn is a perfect example because Jeremy is a really smart guy, no ego, who has a body that is just it's there's nothing super powerful or unusually athletic, nothing extra long about him, just excellent technique and intelligence. And, you know, he worked a lot with Matt. Matt got to, you know, learn a lot of techniques from him. The BJ Penn fights, of course, BJ Penn, Mundial's champion, one of the best jiu-jitsu guys ever. One of the best guys ever. And so he, Matt had, you know, the the game passed toys up, you know, the things had changed and his body wasn't the same. It became, yeah, it became a real bonafide sport. I think there's early... Early UFCs were pretty much like real fights, like mm-hmm. street fights. Yeah. You know? You know how they used to try out for <laughs> this is crazy, man. I was actually called into the ballroom by Horan one time. They had guys trying out for the UFC in the ballroom. They'd get Hill and Gracie and they would have a couple other the uh, Gracie family. They would put on uh knee pads and fight in these hotel ballrooms. Whoa. Yeah, to see fights, well, bare knuckle. They would just go, man. Wow. It was like, oh my god. To find out if a guy's any good. Like those old Gracie and action tapes, to find out if the guy was any good, you know? Well, you know, the early uh, Ultimate Fighters, you know what they have? They would have a guy, they had guys fighting the early Ultimate Fighters that had no fights, zero. (laughs) And they would get those guys and they would have them hit the pads. They'd have a guy hold the tie pads for him. Okay, guy got some striking technique. They'd have him roll a little bit. Okay, looks like he can roll. Get in there. And then they put him on the Ultimate Fighter. I mean, there's quite a few guys that they had that did that. Of course, the early ultimate yeah. Fighter. Of course, as the show evolved, like all things, I mean, yeah, now yeah. you're getting guys like Uriah Hall. They come into the Ultimate Fighter already a killer, you know, just lighting guys on fire when they get in there. 
fascinating, fascinating to be a part of the evolution of all that. Really. And, you know, the training has really evolved, too. I was going to ask you about that. Well, let's let's talk, for example, about you mentioned muscularity and strength. How mm-hmm. muscular do you need to be to yeah, be a fighter? Yeah, that's and the so question, forth? right? Well, obviously, it's a weight class sport. And you want to be as light as possible and as strong as absolutely possible. So absolute strength is pretty important. There's a fixed ratio between absolute strength and muscular endurance strength. There's a fixed ratio. So if you increase your ability to lift a really heavy weight one time, your endurance with a lighter weight is going to also improve. Let's say you manage to build from 80 pounds to 100 pounds in a bicep curl. And prior to that, you could take 50 pounds and maybe you could do 10. When you go from your 80 to your 100-pound curl, your ability to – if you went back to that same 50 pounds that you could do 10 with, you probably do about 13 or 14 reps now. So there's a fixed ratio between strength and muscular endurance. That's interesting. So if you do chin-ups, like say if you can do – I can do 20 chin-ups. That's pretty remarkable. That's always been like an amazing standard. Well, you – Kind of a stud. I always tell people you're a stud. (laughs) Listen, I learned a lot from you. Um, But if I did it with a weight belt, you know, like – a, like a dip belt and a, like a barbell or a, a dumbbell plate underneath it. Yes, that would probably make my my chin ups better. It would. It, let's, so I could probably let, get to tw- my yeah. ultimate goal. I want to be able to do thirty straight arm chin ups. Well, like all the way down. Which which one's a chin up? Like this way yeah, is palms, where I, palms face. That's the way I always do it because I yeah. feel like that's more applicable to jujitsu. Because you don't really choke anybody like this. No, you unless, well, you, you unless like, you're doing a gi choke. Yeah, like, but I don't really like gi nah. chokes. When I use the gi, I don't I don't use the gi. Like I I. I use a gi for I, – I roll with the gi. I have a black belt in the gi. But my my game is completely defensive with the gi. Like I I, um, I do the same techniques, overhooks, underhooks. I, I do, you know, same type of jujitsu. I go for chokes and arm bars. I don't try to collar choke people very rarely. I do the clock choke every now and then, the same one that uh, Valigi caught uh, hoist with. Yes. Put him to sleep with. That's a beautiful choke. That's a beautiful choke. Because I love the spin underneath. It's such a ninja move. But, but if, if you think about it, like – you know, the old saying was, it's not the grips, it's the hips. Mm-hmm. And really top practitioners in both gi and no gi, a lot of times the game is virtually the same. Solo, for example, or Shanji, the game is pretty much the same with gi, without gi. Right. They don't de- overly depend on grips. There's so many guys, though, that do. And I, it, uh, we used to see that in the UFC. These guys who are Mundial's champion, high-level gi guys, but they relied so much on spider guard, so much on grabbing the sleeves. So much on the, yeah, it's like that fucking shit man. is gone when everybody's sweaty. When you got a sweaty guy in his underwear on top, you dropping elbows on your face, <laughs> and he happens to be a wrestler, so he knows how to grapple and, and how to use his weight yeah, and how to keep you pinned down, man. reaching for shit that's not there. Instead of you know underhooks and you know overhooks yeah. and controlling you, the body, use, use the body and not the the, the jacket. Yeah. Well, that's what Eddie Bravo always uh, emphasized that like so many of the techniques of jujitsu that these people relied on and trained on a regular basis. They just weren't applicable, you know. It was like, do you see judo guys training Greco-Roman to get better at judo? Well, actually, the you see- the the, uh, the Miyake, the three-time world Greco-Roman wrestling champion, his judo game and his Greco-Roman wrestling game were virtually identical. So he did both the same way. Yeah, man. So it was sort of the he, same he was, idea. He was a huge underhook man. Ah, you did not want to get in his once he had that underhook. It wasn't a matter if you're going to be thrown, just a matter of when. Mm. And it was 
terrifying experience. I, I was on the receiving end of it. <laughs> the guy was like brutal. Well, when you see the guys that are like really good at judo and they can apply it to MMA, it's so beautiful. Like Hector Lombard. Did you see Hector Lombard versus Jake Shields? That was quite a magnificent match. Oh, the way he threw him, though. And who was that Korean judo guy in Pride that was just tossing dudes? The uh, Korean judo guy. Yeah, it was the guy that won the gold medal uh, from Korea that was just magnificent throws. It was in one of the Japanese shows. Yoshida? You're talking about Yoshida? What, was was it, he Yoshida? was a Japanese guy. No, no, it wasn't Yoshida. He was a gold Yoshida. medalist. It was, uh, it was another Japanese show. I just remember watching it and just watching this judo guy really... Ozakiyama? Was it Akiyama? Uh, man, you know. Akiyama was a judo guy. He, he was pretty high he level. Was Korean, yeah, Korean. He was Korean. Yeah. Korean. Gold well, medalist in the Olympics. Aki, was, I think Akiyama was like half Korean and half half Japanese. I'm not sure. Magnificent. He really tur- he took the judo and really turned it into quite a fighting art without the gi. Hmm. It's really fun to watch. Wish I could remember the show, but I, I was hoping you'd remember. <laughs> yeah. I'm t- well, if you said his name, You're I'd like remember what he did. You're like an encyclopedia for this stuff, man. I don't have any other sports in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, jiu-jitsu, uh, kickboxing, and MMA. That's all I have That's in my it. head. But you ask me some football questions, I'll stare at you. But let's go back to strength training yes, and, please. and conditioning. Well, there, there's a point of diminishing returns where getting stronger is not going to improve your performance anymore. In order to get stronger past a certain point, you have to almost become a strength specialist. And this is where a lot of guys get mixed up. They, they start training like a powerlifter or Olympic weightlifter. Big mistake. The majority of your time should be going into improving your skill set. That's the single most important thing. When it comes to endurance now, you know, we talk about cardio and gas, right? The absolute best way to get your cardio and gas at a high level is to wrestle or to do MMA. The problem is a lot of these guys are so good, they have no one to push their gas. For example, I trained Shanji Ibero the, the year he won uh, Abu Dhabi in Barcelona. And he took second in the open division. He hurt his shoulder in the finals, but he won his division. He was so good that there was no one in the room to push it, man. I mean, this guy is like so good. So elite at jiu-jitsu. I had, I had, to, uh, I had to, to, to pre-exhaust him before he would train. I put him through grueling circuits and such to really, you know, bring his cardio up and get him really tired. Before he would roll. Before he'd roll. So, so that even an average dude can give him a hard time. So now uh, I have no juice left. i got to use pure technique in order to be able to do what I do. That's fascinating. So that when he could roll when he was fresh, it was probably a real treat. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a play. In fact, he, I was actually in Oslo, Norway at the time when he won. He texted me. And it was one of the nicest things anyone ever said. He says, Coach, I didn't even get tired at all. And it was like, yes, the strategy really, really worked. Well, you come up with some brutal workouts, man. I still have those suspension things that you gave me. Those, uh... But normally, normally, you wouldn't need those type of brutal workouts if you're getting high-level competition on the mat. It almost be, it would be too much. It would push you towards overtraining. That's interesting. So like a guy like Fedor, like – or Fyodor, however you want to say it, if you want to be correct. Um, he, in his, at his best, stopped all the strength and conditioning tra- training. And all he would do is fight-specific training. Pretty much sports-specific training, which was always the Russian model. Uh, I, I do believe that you do need to keep your absolute strength up. You do need to lift weights a couple times a week just to keep, you know, fairly heavy weight, low rep, but don't tax yourself. Use it sort of as a tonic. And then really push yourself in the gym to get your hard rolls on to develop your sports-specific conditioning. Because let's face it, all the rope skipping, running, 
kettlebell swings, stairs, it isn't the same as getting on the mat. Right. It's slightly different energy systems. You're using your muscles, different firing patterns. And yes, okay, if you don't have someone to push you in the gym, yes, this stuff is one way to do it, but it's not the ideal way. Because most MMA guys, let's face it, it's it's like a full-time profession, man. You're doing your wrestling, mm-hmm. you're doing your kickboxing or boxing or whatever, you're doing your jiu-jitsu. My God, that's three disciplines. It's like the tri- being a, triathlon, a triathlete, you know? Yeah. You have to equally divide up. I found, too, that being when you get injured and then come back, it's always horrifying. Like the the like if I it would uh, like tore my mani- my uh, knee meniscus I had it scoped and then I was out for a couple months and then come back and you just like oh death you know like a couple minutes in you're just a dead man and one of the ways that I mitigated that was kettlebell training. Well, yeah, I mean when you're hurt or you have injuries or you don't have people to push you in the gym, there are ways that you can very closely simulate the energy systems that you would use in actual grappling. It's never as good as actual grappling and, or kickboxing or whatever. It really Because you're forced to react to the other yeah, person, exactly. which you're not when you're training. So even when you're pushing hard, you're still pushing hard at your pace. You're Correct. not reacting to someone else's pace and relaxing and breathing while you're re- reacting to someone else's That's pace. That's correct. That's the big one. And the other thing, like I mentioned, that I wasn't a real big fan of like Olympic lifting, you know? Mm-hmm. Olympic lifts are very technical, very amazing athletic feat. Basically, you're basically throwing a barbell over your head and jumping underneath it simultaneously. That's what Olympic lifting is. Very specific movement pattern. Has nothing to do with martial arts. You know, when's the last time you saw anyone lift something over their head right. <laughs> in, in martial arts? Very rarely. You know, Unless and, it's and, Tank Abbott trying to throw somebody out of the cage. And, and the skills required to Olympic lift are really high level. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are amazing athletes in their own right. But becoming an Olympic lifter is not going to make you better on the mat. It just isn't. The, the, the more uh, skill level an exercise takes, the higher the skill, the less care over value to anything else. That's why you want to keep your workouts fairly general, fairly simple, like your chin-ups. Fantastic care over to any martial art because it's very general. It's no skill. You pull yourself up or you don't. You really develop a tremendous amount of strength and, in your case, strength endurance. So deadlifts, deadlifts squats, squats, cleans. Cl- uh, yeah. So one that I got from you is alternating cleans. Yeah. I love that one with kettlebells. Yeah, with kettlebells. Uh, uh, that's one I'm of my favorites. Big barbell clean fan only because of the way it can affect your back in a really negative way you mess up a, a barbell clean you can really screw your your uh, your lower back let's face it what we do on the mat is dangerous enough in the ring in the mat mm-hmm. it's pretty dangerous yeah already so i don't need to make my workouts you know i don't need to include traumatic type exercises like that right i only use uh barbells or uh yeah barbells i only use it for bench press and um i try not to do that too much um, but I will if I don't have someone there with me to help me spot because it's hard to do individual kettlebells with uh, with bench press or, or for deadlifts. Oh, no. Those I mean, the, the, the bar is made for deadlifts and bench pressing. Yeah. I mean, that's what a barbell is for. Kettlebells are for swings pretty much, get-ups, you know, bodyweight training. Of course, any kind of pull-up or chin-up, uh, obviously dips and push-ups and things are fantastic. You know, right tool for the right thing. There, you know, some people get really hung up on kettlebells only, but mm. hey, look, it's just one tool in the box, man. They're good, but, you know, there's plenty of other good But it tools doesn't too. simulate chin-ups, right? No, there's a lot of things no, that kettlebells really there's, don't simulate. There's no uh, uh, vertical pulling in, uh, in, in kettlebell training. So ideally, you would 
do your general strength training, and then you get on the mat and you get your conditioning need met in the mat and the ring. So you would say that if someone was like a high-level jiu-jitsu guy and you were looking to just maintain strength or get stronger, you almost wouldn't do conditioning with weights. You would almost do like heavy weights, low heavy reps. Heavy strength work, low reps, So like weights. you would take like maybe like two 70-pound kettlebells and do like alternate cleans, you know, do some reps or with some heavy, heavy stuff. Swings, heavy he- swings. Heavy turkeys get up some, uh, some chins. Some maybe pitch. a 90-pound kettlebell with two hands for swings. Yeah, exactly. Something real heavy. Heavy, low rep work, you know. And not worry so much about developing strength, endurance, or cardio with the weights. So you're just trying to get strong with the trying weights. Trying to get strong as you can for your weight class. Now, if you need to hypertrophy, you need to change the reps a little bit. If you need to armor up, let's say I've been working a guy that uh, might be playing NFL football and he needs to put on some muscle, it's going to be a slightly different protocol. Right. But we're you know we're specifically talking like MMA and, and um Weight class sports like jujitsu and so forth. And hypertrophy, that's, I've always seen that uh, word. Muscular, never... uh, increase in muscular size. Okay. There are some people that need that. And the way to get that is just heavy, low reps, right? Uh, well, heavy no, weight, mo- more reps. moderate reps. You, uh, moderate reps. Yeah, the most important factor there is what they call tall time under load. You need to uh, have your muscles under a certain uh, tension for a specific time. That seems to be the most in fa- important factor to. Uh, Increase muscular size. What do you do? You believe in slow lifting? Do you know that uh, that style of lifting? Especially for people that have been injured, like yourself and myself, uh, it could be a very good training tool. I, I do a lot of slow rep work with myself because I have had some trauma to my shoulders and my neck and my back over the years. You know, you don't you don't do forty three years of combat sports without paying the price. Yeah, last time we worked out together, you were having some real shoulder problems. Did, yeah. Does that get did that get better? Uh, it did not. It hasn't got worse. Wow, this just still fucks so. with you. But, uh, yeah, well, I, I developed some osteoarthritis in the shoulder, mostly from just doing silly stuff, you know, get you snatches. Look into this Regenikine stuff, man. It's yeah, fantastic maybe, maybe for I that. Will, man. Yeah, maybe. you really should. It's, it's fantastic for that. Um, you're not a fan of, of uh, CrossFit. Not at all. Uh, for one thing, there's not one elite athlete anywhere in the world that actually uses CrossFit as the model. The second thing, the second problem I have with CrossFit, Greg Glassman, the guy that invented it, it's, 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 it's no secret that he's very fat, or an obese cripple, basically, who doesn't even train. What kind of system is it when the inventor of the system is not a good example of what he's putting out there? That's crazy, right? I don't know who the guy is that invented okay, it. Okay, well... It, Can it, we it, see him? Pull him up, Jamie. So he, this, he, he, you know, the... Uh, and, of course, then the other thing is... That that's the, him? Get the fuck out of here. No way. Would you Now, would you listen to him or would you listen to me? <laughs> Well, I'd listen to you anyway, but... Yeah, no, but, I mean, okay, listen. Uh, you don't need to look like a men's health fitness model to be, an, you know... Uh, you know right, like good... Fedor. Look yeah. at Fedor. Not, you know, not... Yeah, I mean, he looked like someone's dad that someone went in the bar and said, hey, do you want to fight? And, you know, right. Pulled him off the bar stool. And you can, I mean, for sure, if, if the best physique uh, was what determined who was going to win, the bodybuilders would win every fight. But right, that right. just doesn't happen. But for sure, you want to be an example. You certainly don't want to be like... Overweight and see if you can find some other pictures of him. I mean, maybe bad, he caught him on a bad pictures. day. Maybe he was bloated. He ate some <laughs> ate some pastries. Had some calzone or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what the guy looks like. That yeah. is, that's fucking crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So uh, why? But, do people well, I have to tell you. Something Come on, else. that's really him. There was a major university study on CrossFit, right? And for sure, it improved people's fitness levels. 
they got improved VO2 max, which is a measure of your ability to process oxygen. They got stronger. They lost body fat. But when the study was looked at closely, 20% of the people involved with the CrossFit dropped out due to injury. That means, like, if I'm a gym owner, one out of every five of my clients is getting hurt, and I'm losing the client. That's insane, man. Wow, one out of every five. Because proper training for athletics is supposed to prevent injuries, not cause injuries. If you're hurting yourself in the gym with your supplementary training, dude, you, you got to go to a new model, man. Well, who was that major CrossFit guy that just got paralyzed? Jamie, pull that up if you can. There's a guy who was in the CrossFit. He was like the CrossFit Games, and he was, you know, a major star of CrossFit. And I don't know what exercise he was doing, but he dropped the bar on himself or something and I, broke I, his back. I hear paralyzed. these horror stories all the time, Joe. I'm Eddie done. Ift, who was a buddy of mine, he jumped like someone shot him. CrossFit athlete was left paralyzed after having his spine severed by a drop barbell. Oh, my God. So there, once again, risk-to-benefit ratio of the exercises. And so many of these guys, they're, they're competing in exercise. How the hell do you compete in exercise? Well, I had a com conversation with a guy who was on. Is that him right there? Yeah. We dropped it on him? Pictures of it. It's not a video, but. Oh, my God. That's it just, pretty sick, man. Oh, my God. It's falling on his neck? Uh, take it off, man. Oh, my God. It's pretty, pretty screwed up, man. Oh, my God. It just fell on his Oh, fuck. But, but, but think about this for a minute. I, if, oh, my God. Don't, I, don't play the video. If I was to say to you right now, hey. Let's do some push-ups. We would use good form and good technique, right? We'd re really be working for the true purpose of exercise is to give a stimulus to our muscles so we get stronger, right? Our right. body adapts. Right. But if I said, hey, man, I bet you 20 bucks right now I could do more push-ups than you, you think we'd be doing good reps? After yeah, a while, the no. Form, form would go right out the window because we want to compete with each other. Yeah. That's the insanity of competing in exercise, and that's what CrossFit does. So exercise really should only be to benefit sport, like your initial impulse to get into exercise in the first place. Exactly. I to had a guy on... you To make you a better athlete, to increase your performance. The CrossFit people need to get the fuck out of there and start getting out in the mat and do some real competition. Because let's face it, everything, every kind of sport is a, a sublimation of man's desire to wage war. Why not really do war and do mono-mono combat? That's what I'm talking about, Steve Maxwell. Yeah, <laughs> I had a kid on Fear Factor once that was a CrossFit uh, animal. Kid was in serious shape. His girlfriend was a CrossFitter too. They were both like fucking really fit. And I was like, dude, what do you, what do you get out of it? And he's like, you know, I just love competition. I just love pushing myself. And I'm like, okay. Have you ever done jujitsu? You know, I try to get him to do it. I'm like, but you would be, you're a fucking animal. You're a stud. I mean, do you know what an advantage it would be to be this fit? Like you this could fit. go, you could go on the mats. Like you, like you would right away. You, your, your conditioning is so high. Your VO2 max is so high. You would just have to learn the techniques and you'd be able to already just outwork people. But you know, the shocking thing though, is a lot of times work is very, very specific to the particular sport. You take, for example, well, I'll use Lance Armstrong, you know, the greatest endurance athlete, right? Is what he was coined. I mean, let's take all the drug mm -hmm. stuff out. They all use drugs, okay? Right. So, you know. But he was the greatest cyclist ever. Amazing endurance, right? His first few 10K runs, he sucked, man. He sucked because he didn't have the specific movement patterns of running. Right. Now, he got better. You know, he had that type of energy system. But each sport is different. Right. You take, a, uh, you know, an average swimmer. He's even a really high-level swimmer. He's going to be exhausted in minutes on the mat. Yeah. But, you know, you take me and put me on a bike, I, 
you know, I'm not going to have any endurance on, on a, a mountain bike or a road bike or, or whatever. You only, you only develop endurance in a very specific way. So, you know, the CrossFit guys, believe me, they would have to pay their dues. It would take them a long time to adapt to jiu-jitsu or wrestling. Because I, I, can, I can remember being off the mat for a long period of time and doing all these heinous workouts with, you know, kettlebells and body weight and all this. Go on the mat and, oh, my God, I would suck air so bad. Yep. My gas would be horrible. I'm thinking, what the hell, man? Right. You know? <laughs> I'm in shape. What the fuck's I'm going on? I'm in shape. Yeah, I was in shape to swing kettlebells and to do burpees and... It's not the same, man. Okay, it, it would be better than if I hadn't done those things at all. But let's face it. There's no substitute for doing the actual activity. Especially if you're in there and you have to roll with some savage who's in the some gym savage. five days a week, exactly. training 90 minutes a day, you know, doing yoga in the morning, you know, just and, gearing up for jiu-jitsu. And part, and part of the skill of jiu-jitsu, of course, is conserving your energy while you make the other guy put all his energy out. Yeah. So you got that factor going in there too. I found myself shocked at how bad a shape I was in when I was in good jujitsu shape, and I started kickboxing again after a few years off. I had done no striking at all. I mean, like occasionally I'd go out to the garage and hit the bag a little bit, but like just abandoned it because I was really trying to get my black belt. And then I started kickboxing when I was in really good jujitsu shape. I could roll hard for a long period of time. And I'd fucking hit the pads for a minute, and I'd be exhausted. It's amazing how sport-specific endurance That's can be. That's how the body is. Specific adaptation to impose demand. You can't get good at something else by doing a particular activity. You get good at that activity. And the body is amazingly specific when it comes to that type of thing. This is something I, it took me a while to kind of figure out. So all this crazy, silly buggery of waving these battling ropes and so-called MMA circuits, you know, it's, it's just, you know, MMA, you know, MMA gay. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think that that's important, though, to build a base? Like, that's one of the things that Diego Sanchez told me that he does when he trains. He said he would take, like, say if he had a fight coming up in, like, four months, and he would take the first six weeks and just concentrate entirely on strength and conditioning. Just get himself very, very, very fit and strong. For sure you want to have the base. You know, having an aerobic base for anaerobic sports has, you know, been proven. Having that type of, like I remember even in a wrestling season, you know, we, we would do some, some uh, distance runs, you know, a couple miles, uh, doing general strength training just to, you know, build our, our general strength up to a pretty high level. And then as the season progressed, we get more and more specific with our, with our drills and our training and, you know, the shark bait drills. And have you ever played that drill uh, in jiu-jitsu, first points? Everyone lines up against the wall. You have your best three to five guys out in the middle. First guy to get the two points mm -hmm. stays. Yeah. Man, I'm telling you, even a high-level black belt is going to get taken down by a blue belt at some point or get scored on because you get that tired. Yeah. But, I mean, that's the type of strength endurance I'm talking about for, for, for grappling. I mean, those are brutal drills, man. Yeah, Jean-Jacques used to do one with, with sweeps. Where he would, uh, you'd, you'd be on the bottom, and fresh guys would be on top. It's just and, brutal. Yeah, man. and as long as you could sweep the guy, you stayed in there. But if he swept you, you got off. So for endurance, there's no amount of, like I say, supplementary training that can beat that. No way, man. Just like you found with the grappling, you know, high level grappling conditioning, you lost a lot of the endurance in the ring. Mm -hmm. Now imagine an MMA fighter that has to have high level endurance on takedowns, high level endurance in kicking and punching. High level endurance of jujitsu on the ground. He doesn't have time to be burning his body up with all this other nonsense. 
He's going to be absolutely, utterly overtrained in no time at all and burn out. And, of course, a lot of these kids do get burnt out. Overtraining is really uh, pretty high in, 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 in combat uh, sports. And yeah, rate. how do they figure out how they're overtrained? Is Rest, it monitoring uh, resting heart rate? Yeah, morning resting heart rate. Morning. Um, you take it first thing in bed when you first wake up. And you take it for like seven days to get an hour. Now, we're assuming you're not already overtrained. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, if you suspect you're overtrained, you might want to take a couple of days off and then start this process of seven days in a row taking your monitoring your pulse. Uh, on um, uh, your iPhone, there's an app that you can actually hold your finger on the camera lens and do it. It's pretty handy. It's called what? Instant heart rate. You hold your finger on the camera lens? Yeah, yeah. You, uh, there's an app on your uh, How does the camera lens figure out what your fucking uh, heart rate is? I don't know what the technology the camera, is. Because the Samsung Galaxy S5, the new uh, Galaxy Samsung, one of the things I like about it that I, I was thinking about picking it up is it has a, a, a heart rate monitor built into the actual phone itself because they have some sort of fit app. It has something to do with the heat coming off your finger is Whoa. what I was told. Like each pulse, it's a little bit of heat. Does it you, work? You, yeah, yeah. You see. Can you, you do it? Do it right now. You have it on uh, your phone? You know, I... I uh, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was running here. Yeah. Uh, I actually had gone downtown, and I lost my iPhone as I was jogging to, to the show. Like it fell out of your pocket? It fell out of my freaking pocket. You got to invest in a fanny pack, Steve Maxwell. I sell I them. I'm going to send me one. Okay, send man. One. I'm going to wear a Joe Rogan fanny pack. Please do. I would be honored. Damn it. I've been uh, yeah, selling I these sweet leather roots freaking fanny packs. IPhone. So it's laying out there on <sighs> Santa Monica Boulevard Fuck. somewhere on that little trail. And, you have you that know, app? I was due for an iPhone 5 anyways. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know how they have that Find Your Phone app? Yeah, we we you were going to go see if we could find it, but some bum probably has it right now. Yeah, some stinky bum. There's a lot of those in Santa Monica, man. Oh, man. It's shocking how many bums are on Santa Monica. A lot of homeless. Hey, but look, if you got to be homeless, why not here, man? It's a pretty nice place to be homeless, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely a good spot. Sure beats but... uh, Toronto or uh, Chicago. Fuck, yeah, it does. <laughs> Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's uh, brutal spots to be homeless. So you f you hold your finger on the lens. Yeah. You're doing it, Jamie? Yeah. Is it working? Yeah. And you can also monitor your carotid artery. Bitch, your fucking heart rate ain't 62 beats per minute. That shit's broken. Or your... Let me see it. I'm an athlete. You, are you? Yes. Are you? I, How? I ran seven miles yesterday. Did you really? You fucking animal. Look at you. You are an Savage. Animal. Dude. My, my normal resting heart rate is 59. Now, remember... I'm kind of out of The shape. true resting pulse rate is when you first wake up in the morning before you even get out of bed. How do I start it, Jamie? Probably button on the bottom, it might restart. There you go. Okay, let's see. And you put it over the camera. Okay, yeah. here we go. And then you just that's let it... amazing. Yeah, the technology is pretty crazy. I'm gonna try to. I'm not a tech guy, but there you what's go. it called, Jamie? It's a bunch of instant them, right? heart rate app. Is yeah, instant saying. heart rate app. And then it'll record your message and it'll keep uh, you will be able to uh, that's pretty fucking keep dope. a record. So once you know what the average is, right. Take for seven, divide. That's Oh, and it has options. Just woke up, before bed, yeah. exercising. That's incredible that it can figure it out from you holding your finger over a camera. What a world we live in. What a what world. What a world. Man. Fascinating. I know, man. And you're talking to a guy that wouldn't use a cell phone or a laptop. Like for years. Well, I mean, when I first met you, you had one of those Blackberries with the push button, with the, the <laughs> ski, we would click, click, click. I had one of those pieces of shit. You remember that? <laughs> and you were like, this is amazing. This I is can amazing. do everything on this. <laughs> you were so fired up about it. 
So resting heart rate and then... Um, and then if your morning resting pulse rate, when you first wake up, is more than six or more beats, you should not train that day. That means if you have an elevated heart, heart rate, you're stressed, dude. You have not recovered from the previous day's stress. Oh. Elevated heart rate is the first sign of stress. So it's... All that nonsense about pushing yourself. You don't want to get up. You got to get up anyway. Push through it. You feel like shit. Uh, push through it. There's days that I just didn't want to train, but I forced myself to. That's you really crazy. shouldn't do that. You should not. That's fascinating. So that's a real lesson for people. So there's a lot of folks out here that think, there's a lot of folks in MMA that think like there's days when you're beat and exhausted and you got to push through. You shouldn't push through. You should not push through. You're doing damage wow. to your body. You're pushing yourself further and further into exhaustion. That's amazing. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't get up and do joint mobility, stretching, yin yoga, walking with uh, breath work. Uh, you can go in and if you can hold yourself back, a lot of these kids are pretty addicted to training. But you could also do skill rehearsal. You could do drill. You know, if you're a. So do something that doesn't yeah, push I mean, you. Yeah, let's say you're a competitive jujitsu guy. So you practice your favorite sweep or your baron bolo or mm -hmm. your, your turtle guard, whatever. You do that and you don't do anything hard. Does your son Zach follow all your principles? Yes, he, he does. So and, all... and he's been a really good model of like this type of intelligent training. And he does not do supplementary training other than strength training. And, and he uh, lifts weights and just Yeah. And he does this all Twice monitoring the heart rate and all that jazz. Yep. That's fascinating. And he's done really well from so he won brown belt worlds and uh he's one of the few guys that actually beat Kron Gracie. He beat Kron in the Las Vegas black belt uh uh, challenge. No, look, I was very impressed with Zach. Um, you know, I, I knew who he was because of you. You know, you told me about him. But then Eddie Bravo actually told me about him. And I said, did you know that that's Steve Maxwell's son? He was like, holy, well, no wonder. You know, he was like, no wonder. I guess the other kid must be a fucking animal. Growing up with Steve Maxwell's He's your dad. He's an animal, man. <laughs> He's an animal. So if a guy wakes up, like say if your normal resting heart rate is, you know, for an elite athlete, let's say it's 40 beats a minute. Right. And you wake up and one day it's 45. Yeah, you probably, you definitely should take off that day. Or so stretch. Or you do yeah, just, just something like they call it active recovery. Yes. Where it's just Going moderate, low level activity, mm -hmm. but definitely don't go beat your brains out in the gym. Wow. And so the people that do do that, that think you just got to push through, they're just being strong being dumb they're being dumb because it's going to work against you let's put it this way it's not what you can do in the gym it's what can you recover from in the gym wow because all the magic happens from rest i mean let's let's a workout only has negative consequences your blood pressure is elevated you're muscularly weaker you've you you know you've you've actually torn and broken down muscle fiber you know your whole hormonal system is lower it's that rest phase in between the workouts where your body adapts and you become stronger. The more fit you become, the longer it takes to recover because you're able to push yourself harder and harder. A weak person that's not very fit, they can't push themselves hard enough to really, they, they actually could probably work out every day. But a really fit, strong guy like yourself, for example, you cannot drive yourself every day because each workout you're making such a demand on your body. One thing that you cannot control is your ability to recover. It's set at the biologic level. It's wow. cellular, man. Unless you're doing steroids. Unless you're doing steroids. That now, changes a lot. But even those guys still, uh, they re one of the things that steroids does do is it allows you to recover much, much more quickly. I want to talk to you about weight cutting, too, because there was a, a really fascinating thing today. Um, there was an article in Bloody Elbow about uh, Jim Miller. And Jim Miller was talking about how he believes that weight cutting took years off of his life. 
And, you know, I mean, Jim looked fantastic this weekend. He beat uh, Yancey Medeiros. He submitted him in the guillotine, put him out, actually. First time I've ever seen a guy celebrate while a guy's unconscious lying on him. Like, Jim is like this. And I think guy's unconscious. Yancey's <laughs> completely out cold, eyes open, lying wow. on top. And Yancey's a fucking stud, too. So it was, it was a big victory for him. Miller's a sick jiu-jitsu guy. He submitted uh, Fabricio Camoens in his last fight, who was one of, uh, uh, one of Hoyler's black belts. Wow. So, I mean, caught him with a really slick arm bar. So Just, this guy got to be pretty. Good, Jim Miller's a bad motherfucker, but he was talking about his weight drop and, uh, you know, his weight cut that he's, you know, made a lot of errors over the years and that, uh, he, you know, he's fucked it up. But, you know, his, his direct quote, he says, I'm positive I took years off my life cutting weight. That's fucking crazy. Well, if you think about it, just combat sports in itself, like I said, we, we I mentioned this several times, is, uh, no one ever said it's healthy. It definitely shaves years off the end of your life. But, hey, look, man, you can't just have – I mean, you could just be like some dude that never did much and just sits around and has a really nice long life. But, I mean, <laughs> what the hell is that, man? You know? It's right. like a man can't just sit around. Right. So, like, you take the typical NFL football player. You know, the average life expectancy for an NFL football player, I believe, is 64 years old. It's not very old. It's, you know, that's, that's young, dude. That's only three more year, years older than I am. Right. But if you were to ask those guys, hey, was it all worth it? They'd say, hell yeah. Man, the roar of the crowd, the adulation, you know, uh, you know, the excitement of playing at such a high elite level of sport. Almost every guy to a man would say, yeah, it, you know what? I, w- I would take the shorter life for the glory. But that aside, you know, people that are just doing this for fun as a hobby, they got to be careful, man. They can't be doing all this crazy stuff. You know, these kids that go to the local tournaments and this and that and are playing around with this, all this serious weight cutting, mm-hmm. they're doing their, their health irreparable harm. Fight your damn weight and stop trying to get an unfair advantage by cutting down and then gaining back. It's- well, look at some of the greats. Look at Frankie Edgar. Constantly fought guys much larger than him. Won the title. Beat BJ Penn, who also did the same thing. BJ Penn fought below his weight for his entire career fought fucking heavyweight when he fought Lyoto Machida Machida was like 208 when they fought that's pretty amazing fucking crazy and held his own held his own you know beat Matt Hughes who was a monster at 170 you know BJ Penn was the perfect example of a guy who just fought anybody at any weight. Anybody. The guy had no fear, man. He's an animal. And now he's fighting at 145. <laughs> I know, man. In- incredible. I mean, that's probably where he should have been his entire career if you compare the athletes of today and what they're doing. But even at 145, he just decided to alter his diet, put a, really intensified his training, and now he got down to, like, he's walking around a little over 150 pounds. So he's not going to cut a lot of weight. You know, these guys that are cutting like 25, 30 pounds of weight, I've seen guys shuffle up to the scale. Like like death warmed over. They Travis like, Luter was like the worst. cadavers, man. Travis Luter, when he fought Anderson Silva, missed the weight cut and uh, missed it, tried it again, missed it again, and then wound up fighting for a non-title fight because he couldn't make the weight. And he was off by not much at the end. It was only like a pound and a half, but shuffling to the weight, to the, to the scale because he couldn't walk. And then they try to rehydrate with these IVs. Yeah. You know, they, they take the IV. Yeah. Man, there's no way that your body can sustain that type of abuse and you be at your best. You're not going to be at your best. No way, The idea man. is, no though, way. that you're going to be – there's Luder um, when, he, when he weighed in. It's hard to tell from photos how bad he looked. You had to see him moving and walking. Look how sunken his eyes were, though. But he um, – I mean, 
it's it's hard to tell from that picture how much different he looks than he does when he's normal and healthy and full and, and ready to rock. That was a guy who had fucking massive potential. He was such a good jujitsu guy. But such a good jujitsu guy. Until well, his end even of his in career. my own personal experience, like uh, 1974, uh, I was gearing up for the uh, uh, NCAA double uh, A tournaments. You know, we're getting into the the big tournament season. I had a record of uh, 18, two and one at that time. I was a really good college wrestler, like high level, and uh, somehow I got talked into going down to 158. I was doing great at 167. That was like my natural weight. I felt really good. I was strong. Joe was a huge mistake. Wow. I end up getting the flu. I get sick. I felt like shit. So you're probably already lean at that I weight. I was already lean, man. I mean, you were cutting. What? How much did you drop? Well, and how much were you, you know, cutting? from 167 to 158, that's almost 10 pounds. Right, but what were you weighing when you body. weighed 167? What were you walking around at? Uh, usually about... 170 maybe. So one. you're only cutting a little bit. Yeah, because I, I, I was very strict. Even in those days, even in my college days back in the 70s, I was very strict about my diet. There's a lot of people that are trying to figure out the point of diminishing returns. Like, what is it when it comes to weight cutting? Because you'll see guys that rehydrate, and they are beasts. Like Glayson T-Bow, that guy cuts almost 30 fucking pounds. Well, one of the things I really liked about the Moon Giles and the Pan Ams, you weigh in at the edge of the mat and then you go out and you fight right then and there. There's no cheating the scales. Can't I, do that for the UFC, though. I often wish they would, though, because I'll tell you, you would see the, the, the abuse of weight loss would completely end. People I agree. would have to fight their own weight. I think that they should fight their own weight, and I think that's more in line with the spirit of martial arts. I do, too. Because why are people losing weight? Well, they're trying to have a mechanical advantage. Tall, rangy guys have that leverage strength, a leverage advantage. I mean, you know... Physical strength advantage, uh, muscle yeah, advantage. Physical, and, and then, you know, you lose this weight unnaturally, artificially, and then, you know, by fight time, you're much, much heavier. It's kind of a form of cheating, actually, if you, in my opinion. In a way, it is. In a way, it is. But if everybody's doing it, it almost is a necessity to compete at the highest levels. That's the problem. Well, that is the problem. It's just like the guys, you know, like Lance Armstrong saying, look, everybody was taking the drugs. Mm-hmm. How can you compete at that level in the Tour de France if you don't? Well, okay, but my point is no one should be doing it. Well, the Lance Armstrong thing, the problem is that he's a douchebag. Well, That's yeah, the problem. That, that, sued everybody for saying that he was taking drugs, l- said everybody, you know, looked people in the eye and said, you know, I never doped, I never did anything. Amazing liar, man. Not amazing. I didn't believe him. Nah. Not for a fucking second. Nah. Not for one second. I had a friend. Uh, my friend uh, is a uh, former professional cyclist, and he told me, he just he goes, listen to me, man, no one, no one's clean. I go, no one? He goes, no, no one. One's clean. No one. I could believe that. He said guys would get up. He was on the, the tour, and guys would get up, and they were, on, you know, they were on a bus together. Guys would get up. They would be on so much EPO that they would have to take their bike out in the middle of the night and run because their blood would start getting thick. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, oh, Jesus. That's yeah. crazy stuff, man. He said you would hear the guy get their bike rack off, and you would hear them just ride off, and you knew exactly what it was. Just trying to thin out that yeah. blood. Well, wow. you know, I think we see it in fighters. There's some fighters that work out the day before the fight, and why are they why you know why are they doing it? Why they the fucking hell have they? to. They probably have to. You know, why would you want to stress your body out the day before a fight? I mean, it's one thing to get a light workout in, hey, a little sweat, up. a little jumping rope, some stretching, a little yoga. There's guys who would work out hard the day before, and that's, also. That's nuts. 
EPO wasn't even being tested in Nevada until, I mean, I don't know, I think they're testing for it now, but for the longest time, they weren't testing for EPO because they thought it was an endurance sport problem, like a thing like cycling and triathlons, and they didn't think that it applied to boxing, which I thought was like one of the best pieces of evidence. You got fucking morons who are dictating what gets tested and not tested. Like, you want to talk... Just a complete ignorance of what is involved in the sport. Boxing is such an intensive endurance sport. Amazing yeah. endurance sport, man. Anyone that doubts it, just get in there and do three minutes sometime in a boxing gym and see. Just hit the bag! It's absolutely, utterly devastating if you're not used to it. Yeah, I mean, without anybody ripping your body with left yeah, hooks. Yeah, I mean, let alone taking the punches in, in, in addition. And trying to breathe while someone's punching you. <laughs> and breathing. Well, that's the thing that Nick Diaz always does to guys. People always say, well, why does he punch like that? Because like, he'll throw like a lot of punches that aren't even that fun. Because you can't breathe while he's hitting you. While he's hitting you, you're going, you're tightening up. So a few minutes of that, like you've essentially held your breath. Like he's just Robin pop, 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 pop. Of, yeah. of, of oxygen. Yeah. But uh, one, one thing I was really happy about the Moon Jiao, they finally started testing the metal winners for the drugs. Oh. For years, they did not. And um, when did they do this? This has just been last couple of years. That's very important because for the longest time, guys would come out looking purple. They were, they, they were bragging. Some of the guys were bragging about the drug that they were taking. And finally, they made it illegal. They are now testing the, the place winners in the Munja. And you're suspended. Now, I believe, Zach told me this the other night that uh, I believe it's a year. I don't know whether that's true or not. I heard it's a year of suspension. So no jujitsu tournaments at all for a year. For one year, I, I think it should be more, like three years. But well, that would really make keep it the real. Blow. You know, the UFC does nine months for the first offense. You know, but they're really trying to crack down on it. I mean, and now you know we have this uh, the TRT issue, which. I had Dr. Mark Gordon, who is uh, an expert in traumatic brain injury, who was talking to me about the, you know, he's like, there's two reasons why someone needs testosterone. Well, there's three. One, you're an older person and your body starts to wane. Two, you've suffered brain injuries. Brain injuries. Three, you took steroids and then you depleted your system and now you have to replenish it artificially. And so finally they removed that from fighting, which I think is very important. I think because so too. Two of those things, a traumatic brain injury for sure, and then the steroid taking for sure. And then if you're old, you're, you're, you know, you're a guy and he's in his 40s and you, you want to keep competing and the only way to do it with, is with testosterone, <sighs> boy, you probably shouldn't be fighting anymore. Probably you know? not. I mean, it's a certain point. But, it's a young man's game. And you can do things naturally uh, to stimulate it as you get like my age. Yeah, we're running out of time here. Sorry, but uh, so, yeah, do, do, you know, doing high intensity uh, interval training, squats, yeah, uh, he, uh, full body movement patterns, uh, big big movements. Uh, I like to run some sprints, wind sprints, those type of things. You know, short intense uh, can really stimulate the body too. What do you think? Have you studied at all any of these new uh, this uh, these new gains that they're making in genetic engineering and what they're pushing for? Have you contemplated what this what the the possibilities are for sports because it's one of the things that I'm more I, I want to say concerned but fascinated at the same time you know as a as a person who's standing outside of it I mean obviously I'm a commentator but science is so close to altering the the very genetics of a human being I mean within our lifetime 40 50 years from now max you're going to see super athletes from the bottle you know, from the from a test tube, from a needle, from whatever it is, genetic engineering. That's nano- what they keep threatening anyway. 
<laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah, man. I'm sure maybe at some point. It still seems to be pretty far off and mm-hmm. still a lot of theory and conjecture. So, But what happens then? I mean, how much do we lose? If we think about what, what an athlete is, when you admire a guy like, say, a Rocky Marciano or a great boxer or, or a, you know, any great athlete from a time where they weren't doing anything. What do you admire them for? You admire them for their willpower, their determination, their their focus, their tenacity, the fact that this guy their 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 workmanship, yes, the, you know, the, the work the, ethic. The work ethic, yeah. When I was a kid, when I lived in Boston, Muhammad Ali was going to fight Mustafa Hampshire. And Muhammad Ali was one of the most Spartan training, excuse me, not Muhammad Ali, Jesus Christ, Marvin Hagler Marvin was going to fight one Mustafa Hamshaw. I can't believe I said Muhammad Ali because I was thinking about him as another example of a great athlete who just trained hard in an era with no d- drugs. But Marvin Hagler was going to fight Mustafa Hamshaw and he was training for it on Cape Cod in the winter. And one of the reasons why he did that was because he would run the sand dunes and just because he loved the fact that he was in the fucking brutal cold of Cape Cod running by the ocean. And I remember uh, they had a, a, a thing on the, uh, the news where they were uh, hyping up the fight and they were going through his training regime and he was running up sand dunes screaming war. <laughs> screaming. Just war and just running and shadow boxing. And I saw that and I went running. I ran, I ran stairs near my house. There was this, this stairs near this bridge near my house and I went running. I was like, fuck. But, you know, if he's, instead he's sitting there and they're pumping him full of EPO and they're monitoring his blood and, you know, giving him artificial this and genetic that and... What 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 is a bo- I mean? Remember Drago in Russia? Yeah. The, the fucking in the the, the the Rocky Four when you saw Stallone was fucking running with logs on his back through the snow, and they have Drago. They're spiking him with steroids. Lifting, and, yeah, lifting a cart full of rocks and all that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, we've already done it to our food with genetic modified. Uh, but it's inevitable, though, and right? I suppose they're going to do it to the human body, also. I mean, who knows? But what does that have to say about athletics? What is athletics going to be when that happens? Well, it sure isn't going to be what we knew it to be, and it's sure not. It sure strays far from the the ideal that carried us for two thousand years, which was the ancient Greek ideal. Yeah, our generation, age of Greece. Our generations are probably like the last generations to know what privacy feels like, like real, true privacy. You know, when remember when you were a kid, you could leave the house. You could just fuck off and go anywhere. Nobody had any idea where you are. Your parents hoped you came home, and that's about it. That's pretty much it, man. My mom sent me out with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a brown bag. Say, see you at dinner, <laughs> and that was it. I remember the first day, long, day we got playing, an answering machine. Making, someone could leave a message when you weren't <laughs> home. <laughs> making tree forts and yep. all sorts of crazy stuff. The uh, the era of genetic manipulation, though, is surely like right around the corner. Or within our lifetime, within 40, 50 years. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. But uh, probably when it goes into full swing and becomes completely accepted by society, I guess I'll probably be dead by that point. So <laughs> I don't know, dude. I have a feeling you're going to live a long time. Yeah. I have a feeling you're going to be around for a long time. Well, you're you're kind of planning for it, too. Yeah. Well, your diet is very unusual in that respect. That's like, gotten very Spartan, and the systematic undereating has shown to be uh, one of the keys to longevity. Systematic undereating. Yeah. Like words, how many calories do you mark your calories? Uh, I I use an Okinawan. You know, Okinawas are like one of that uh, that blue zone where people like an unusual amount live to be centenarians, very high level. Another blue zone is Ikaria, Greece, where there's an unusual amount of people that live to be over a hundred years old. Part of it's genetic, but a lot of it is the lifestyle, the lack of stress, and so forth. But anyway, any rate, the Okinawans have this saying, uh, 80%. You never leave the table feeling satisfied. 
You never eat until you're full. You leave 80% capacity. So hmm. I, I almost— Why do they do that? What's, what's the philosophy behind that? The, the idea is if you overburden your digestion by overeating or making yourself feel full, it, it's too much of an innervation on the system. It takes more out of you than what you get out of your food. So that has been something that they, it's ingrained in their culture for a long time? It's ingrained in their culture. Wow. So this is something they figured out a long time ago. They figured this out a long time ago. They it probably goes way back to you know, ancient times. They also get a lot of coral calcium too, right? Isn't that like a big part of— They do. And they, you know, they have a lot of uh, mineralization from their fish broth and so forth. And they eat a very, very uh, simple, pretty Spartan diet, really. I mean, it's very simple. Now, in these days, how much time we got left, Jamie? We got like five. five minutes. And th- these days, um, do you roll at all anymore? Do you still yeah, do yeah. jiu-jitsu? I was just down in Arcadia uh, uh, rolling around at uh, Carson uh, Gracie School. Now, do you make sure that well, you I mean, don't I, go uh, with any— Carlos Gracie's Don't go with any Well, you know, I'm a fifth-degree fifth black belt now, and a lot of times I am a little bit younger than what I look. So kids don't see a 61-year-old dude. They see, uh-huh. like, oh, black belt. Oh, I'm going right. to, you know— so I got to be very careful who I choose. Right. I, I like to do light rolls. Usually the instructor at the school is pretty good. Yeah. You know, and you go in with a lot of humility, you know, for sure. Get permission before you go to these schools. You just don't show up and put the guy in the spot. Right, right, you right. Know, they might think you're challenging or something and, you know, they want to show off in front of the students or whatever. So I'm very, very careful. I like to roll with, uh, you know, lighter guys. I try not to roll with the really heavy guys anymore. Yeah, I'm done with heavy guys. It's, it's really just too f- bad for your back. Yeah, no, it is. It, you know, your back is just any guy over two hundred pounds stacking you. It's just too much on your your joints and your especially your spine. Like so, like here on Gracie, apparently, I want to talk to him about this, yeah. but he's got a numb arm. I I do an awful lot of joint mobility work. I, I actually teach a specific anti aging mobility routine. You have a DVD people. on it. Yeah. Uh, video downloads, actually. I, I, I've switched from DVDs to downloads. I have the DVD. I'm yeah. old school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you I go. bought it years ago. But, uh, yeah, mobility is really important. But I've changed my mobility over the years. Now I've learned new things and I've incorporated new ideas. So I should get the new one? Yeah, I think so. I'll send, I, I'll send it to you. I'll where do I get it from where, uh, if somebody was listening to this? Uh, it's Steve Ma- uh, It's MaxwellSC.com. Maxwell Strength and Conditioning, SC. MaxwellSC.com. That's the website. That's everything. And um, I'll, is send it, you, I'll send you the link. You just write me, and I'll send you the links. And your um, your Twitter though is Steve Maxwell SC. Yes, Steve Maxwell SC. Um, so if someone wants to get a strength and conditioning program from you, you do all that stuff online, right? I do. And you have a lot of videos online. There's a lot of cool stuff. A lot that, of videos and stuff I, on work. I'm always trying to you know uh, improve myself. I'm I'm still a student. I don't care how long you've been in the game, man. You can still learn new things, and so. It's a never-evolving thing. And, of course, as I get older, I have to change up, too. I mean, no one gets out of here alive. Everyone, yeah. You know, every, your your capacity does diminish over time, and you feel the bump. But you can really sh- slow it down to a crawl. As long as you continue to push. You got to do some push. You got to constantly give fight against the aging process. Um, you were also uh, God. We're running out of time here. I wish we weren't. Um, you were in Russia recently. I was doing I was in some, some training in Novosibirsk. You I went was, there on your own dime just to, uh, to, to learn. I was w- working with uh, Kadashnikov, who was the father of uh, Russian military martial arts. It was pretty interesting. This guy is like eighty years old, kind of like an Elio Gracie kind of guy. Man, he mo- put me in the most painful wrist lock. This guy was he, he was saying do something to me, you know, in Russian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get in the translation. And I'm thinking, oh shit, 
what am I going to do with this old man? And wow, the guy is really amazing. Very soft, relaxed uh, martial art. He was the creator of this particular Russian military martial art. And it's uh, it's all geared towards uh, military and, and self-defense. It's, what does it have its roots in? Uh, a Slavic martial art that was earlier. Uh, there was a guy by the name of Spiridinov that uh, studied Chinese and and uh, different uh, internal systems. And then uh, he taught it to Kadashnikov, and then Kadashnikov mixed it with some Sla- native Slavic-type martial arts. And it, it's uh, he also created the biomechanical exercises for the body, mobility drills for health and well-being. Uh, good for any sportsman, wrestlers, jiu-jitsu guys. So I'm teaching a lot of this stuff now. I've incorporated it in my own in my own system. Fascinating. So when you go and uh, meet with a guy like that and learn his stuff, are you videotaping it? So no, you can... no, no videotapes allowed. So how did you, uh, you just remembered what he said and yeah, took I have notes? Yeah, I have a really good memory. I took notes on my iPhone and so forth. The one I lost. <laughs> yeah. thank you God for, Thank God for iCloud. Ah, there you go. You backed it up. Um, so you, you, it's Sistema? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's called Sistema. And there's a couple of branches of Sistema. This is the original Sistema. There's the group up in Toronto that does their version, the Michael Riabko. That's like the phantom punches. And yeah, what fun. is all that? That's what I've seen. A lot, a lot of that is Riabko's punched those guys, and he hurts when he punches. It really hurts. And what he does is he'll, he'll show the fist, and the guys just fall down because they, they don't want to get hurt. So he really is controlling them psychically just by intimidating them. So he's just a hard puncher that's got a bunch of pussy whip students. Pretty much. But <laughs> their students are pretty tough guys. But there's something to it. They're, it's the breath work. You know, Hickson came out of retirement and uh, is doing the seminar circuit. Mm-hmm. A black belt friend of mine in Germany, Bjorn Friedrich, he was the first German black belt in BJJ. He took Hickson's seminar. He says, wow, he spent the first hour just in breath work and relaxation. And that's what the Sistema guys do. Well, Crone was talking about that on the podcast well, as well. It's funny because the Gracies all did it, but they never taught us. But uh, now they're revealing the secret. And it really does go back to the breath. I, I would love to be able This could be a whole podcast in itself. Just breath work. Just the breath work. Well, when are you back in L.A. again? Well, it may be sooner than later. I'm, I'm thinking about doing another video download of some of the stuff I learned in Russia. And I'm going to do three follow-along workouts that guys can do in their hotel room or while they're on the road, uh, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Uh-huh. And I'm going to actually do a follow-along workout. And I love this videographer out here. I shot a, uh, a trailer for a possible reality TV show. And uh, that's what I was doing here in L.A., plus a book deal. I had an article in the March issue of Men's Health, and it attracted a lot of attention. So I had an offer to come out and shoot a trailer, maybe to pitch some people. Because I'm a pretty weird dude, man. Yeah, you're a pretty weird dude. You're living, you're living out of a, out of a, a bag. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a key. I, I don't no have, keys. No keys, because I don't have any locks to need them for. I don't wow. have an apartment or a house. No that doesn't car. ever freak you out? Sometimes, you know. Does it? Being a former householder and... Yeah. You know, having a gym and a house and cars and kids. Do you ever think you'll go back to that? Is this temporary? Hell no. Once you leave all that stuff, it's it's so freeing, man. Wow. It's like real freedom. You're an inspiration, Steve Maxwell. You're a bad motherfucker. Hey, you are too, Joe. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate you coming on, man. It was a lot of fun. So, folks, MaxwellSC.com. Um, uh, Teresa gave me some stuff. To uh, to read about uh, oh, yeah. you're in the U.S. till the 24th of May. Uh, you have a, a seminar in Buffalo, the 4th of May. Unfortunately, it's sold out. New York, 3rd of May. Toronto, 10th of May. Uh, PDX, which I guess is Port- Portland. That's what they call PDX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Portland, oh, Oregon. Just, what is PDX? 
I don't know why they call no it PDX. Idea, man. Okay, that's um, the 17th and 18th of May, and Indianapolis the 24th of May. Again, all of this available on MaxwellSC.com. Steve Maxwell SC on Twitter. Anything else? Yeah, RevGear. There's a MMA Expo in San Antonio, Texas, August one, two, three. I'm teaching kettlebells specifically for martial arts, uh, MMA, jiu-jitsu. So get get if you if you want to learn about kettlebells or how to teach them better, get to the Rev uh, Rev Gear. Uh, uh, expo. It's an MMA expo. And will all this be on your website as well? Yeah, it's going to be on the okay. website. And so check out Rev Gear, man. MaxwellSC.com. Steve Maxwell, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, thank thanks you. to our sponsors. Thanks to Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and uh, use the code word Joe to save yourself some cash. Thanks also to Onnit.com. That's O N N I T. Use the code word Rogan. Save 10% off any and all supplements. We'll be back tomorrow with Dave Attell. On Thursday, we got Greg Fitzsimmons, and then we're also doing the UFC, um, I want to say wrap-up analysis, post-fight, with uh, Brendan Schaub and Brian Callen, uh, the fighter and the kid. So that's uh, two podcasts on Thursday. And then Friday night, I'll see you guys at the Lobero Theater in Santa Barbara with Joey Diaz. It's almost sold out. It might be sold out this week. I'm not sure. It was pretty close the other day. All right. Much love, everybody. Big kiss. Mwah.